Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to uh, another episode of Politicore. I'm Dylan. And uh, yeah, this is uh, this is a, a long one we're getting ready to do here. Um, uh, Evan, you want to talk about the, the guest briefly? Sure. I mean, this is... Um, I feel like I'm very fortunate that so far our guests have been kind of all bucket list conversations for me and this one is certainly not an exception um eugene s robinson is a true renaissance man in the in the purest sense of the word he's an actor he's a musician he's a performer he's a writer and um that was just what i knew before the episode by the end of the episode i realized that those things are probably the least interesting things that he does (laughs) Um, yeah, truly, I would say the most interesting man in the world, or at least that I've ever met. And uh, the conversation kind of goes everywhere, which is what he told me it would probably do. Um, but it was a really rich, interesting one. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, this one, this one's long. I know some of you probably will, will tune out halfway through. That's okay. Uh, this uh, this this one this one gets weird, um, <laughs> especially in the last third. I would say, yeah. Uh, this is uh, I would say it's real tinfoil hat hours, but 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 it's not. That's that's what actually makes it so uh, so it's kind of kind of kind of strange. Um, for better or for worse, it sounds like Eugene has has rubbed elbows with. Uh, a lot of Silicon Valley types that's depending on who you are, either make you nauseous or intrigue you. And uh, yeah, the latter half of the conversation, I think, would is is truly the most interesting part. So anyway, I would. Yeah. So I would say if you're if you if don't like the, the length deter you, uh, this one is definitely going to reward you if you listen to the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, with that all being said, um, we hope you enjoy it. This is, again, it's a long one, so I got I got nothing else to say. You got anything? No, this, that speaks for itself. Absolutely. Uh, big big shout out and thanks to Eugene again, and uh, thank thanks to everyone who listens. We'll we'll talk to you soon. You sound great to me, but uh, as I think many guests probably have uh, said. Uh, when we're not around, I was like, what the fuck were those guys doing? <laughs> yeah. Dude, I want to make sure that we preserve the dulcet tones of my, of my baritone. I always yeah. spend the first 10 minutes before we start recording, just doing solfege and, and uh, doing sibilance exercises to make sure I'm on my game. And then I mumble for the whole time. Good, good, good. I'm glad you're taking this, this as seriously as I am. Um, so yeah, you know, I uh, meant to tell you, uh, I got uh, I got jury duty um, coming up, so it's been I'm, giving, not, I'm, I'm not excited. I'm a little worried that I've it's, there's a warrant out for my arrest somewhere because ever since I moved, I never received a jury summons, and I feel like they're going somewhere, and I'm getting in trouble for not responding to them. Mm, well, I I have received several in my adult life and then i like every time i tell people about it they're like what wow i've never got one like what was it like and i was like dude it sucked like i was like one of the potential jurors so i just got like questioned by 
uh, both attorneys uh, and the judge for for two days straight. I always managed to intentionally or unintentionally, I managed to make myself as unappealing to uh, prosecution or the defense as possible. Um, I don't know what it is that I do, but I managed to dodge that. Yeah, I I got out of it. Um, yeah, I I mean I guess enough time has passed. Basically, there was a murder trial, and they're like, oh, there's going to be police testimony on it. And some libertarian guy who was sitting next to me was like, I'm biased. I don't like the police. And he's like, I'm a sovereign citizen. Like he did the whole thing, and I was I just like watched him for a second, and I kind of like looked back at like the courtroom, and he got dismissed right away. And uh, I stood up next and basically did the exact same thing and got to go home. So nice. Yeah. Just walk in with a cab tattooed on your neck. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <what am> I... <laughs> We're talking about how to get out of jury duty. If you got uh, any, yeah. any, any pointers, Eugene. Yeah. You know, the letter they send you to ask you to come to do jury duty. Yes. Throw that in the garbage. <laughs> and then they'll send you another letter. And you throw that in the garbage until they have you sign that you actually got the letter. They can't prove that you got the letter. So if it comes certified mail, then you could go, oh, go. Well, I guess to appear. But, you know, I mean, this is outside of the ethical issue about whether you believe in the jury system and you deserve, you know, this is your civic duty and all that. But I, I, I've never served on jury duty and I've never been called, um, mostly because of the system I just outlined for you. Hmm. Well, it's, it's sort of like the uh, Dylan. I'm not sure if they have these where you're at, Eugene, but Dylan may recall uh, the system we had with red light cameras in Arizona yep. for a while. Yep. And they were ticketing people left and right and making bank off of it. Um, but it was always if if you didn't match, if the driver didn't match the person on the on the registration driver's license. They would send a letter saying, is this you? Yep. Yes. And all you had to do was say no. And so yep. there was a guy who was intentionally driving through red lights every day with a gorilla mask on, um, <laughs> trying to just mess that up. Uh, uh, I liked it. Good for him. I'm not sure. Eugene, I'm not sure if Dylan knows them. Eugene probably will. Do you, do you know who the gorilla girls were? Yes, I remember them. One of my college professors was a documentary class that I was taking, and she was one of the gorilla girls, and that's how I learned about them. <laughs> Rad, like yeah. gorilla feminist uh, anarchists. Yep. Super rad. All right. Well, our guest has arrived. So, uh, Eugene S. Robinson, um, I was trying to set up an intro for you, but it's. It, it's kind of you've done a little bit of everything. Um, would, do you feel comfortable introducing yourself? No, it's your show. You do it. Okay. <laughs> so Fuck. Um, <laughs> our listeners will probably or hopefully if they're listening to the music that I think they should listen to, will know him from Oxbow, Blackface, Whipping Boy, um, most recently, uh, Boonwell. And um, I guess recently, a cameo with Jim Jones Review. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, at this point now, there, there are some obsessive listeners who have started to kind of track all of the from Capricorns to Conifer to Dead Kennedys to like all of the side projects and, and participate, you know, 
stuff that I've, you know, stuff that I've done. And it's, it's pretty exhaustive. In fact, somebody started reminding me of stuff that I had done and honest to God, I, I had no memory of it. I just, and it used to, it used to really irk my wife. She'd go, how can you not? And then I started including her in these projects. And then she saw how easy it is to lose the tail of the tiger when mm. you just, when you just do as I do, which is typically to say yes to everything. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, because I was trying to whittle down highlights uh, that I think our, our listeners either should already know or should start to know. Um, and it's just endless. Um, and that's just the musical aspect before we even to get into um, the TV or the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, acting and and writing um um yeah but most recently uh Bunuel, is that the project that's getting ready to tour yes that is a project that is the italian supergroup of which i am the only non-italian right and, and i have to tell you we this will be our third tour and i didn't realize how big these guys were in italy until you know there's a there's a two-step that's familiar to me because i've been doing music for a long time you know, the drummer sits out and a certain portion of the audience cheers and the bass player goes out and a certain, you know, the guitar player goes out and a certain portion of the audience cheers. And then the singer comes out, everybody loses their mind because now they may not even like the guy, but they know that the show is now officially started because, you know, Eugene's here. So, but touring with these guys, you know, the drummer goes out, people go crazy. And, you know, guitar guy crazy, the bass player go crazy. And then I come out thinking like, yeah, and people are like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> like, who's that black guy? You know, we only the tours were only in Italy before, but these guys, these guys are massively significant bands in Italy, but they really wanted to do this thing. And at this point now, you know, with two tours behind when we I come out on stage in Italy, people go, oh, the guy from Oxbow. And they're like, they're happy to see me. But uh, yeah, it was very funny. It was a very funny uh, twist. Yeah, I've been listening to Killers Like Us on repeat. Um, I was hoping before we get into the more serious or um, more, I guess, literary uh, material that we're hoping to get to, uh, can you talk a little bit about how, what kind of itch Boonwell scratches um, as opposed to Oxbow or Blackface or Whipping Boy? Well, you know, I always talk about Oxbow as being much more like a documentary, you know, that the, if I had more comfortable being more re revelatory, um, I would have said it, it's I would have kept a diary. And a, a, as it stands now, it's a pretty nice one to one correlation between my actual life. Typically, it's a few years behind because it takes us a few years to work on the record, but my actual life and what's happening in the confines of Oxbow, uh, at least my portion of Oxbow music, right? As the guy who writes the lyrics and is coming up with the, you know, thematic drives for the record, the non-musical portion of, of the offering. But Bunuel is much more like a, like a film, in, which is, of course, causally connected to the fact that we chose to have a film director's name be the name of, of the band. Right. And as such, it tends to be um, unmediated and darker, right? Um, in that I am pursuing a very specific vision uh, through the music. And in, in instance, in this instance, I mean, stuff that is not, um, you know, that is more in line with the Freudian idea of id 
and of course stuff that's part of my life but stuff that i've desired to <laughs> you know at least in the oxbow oeuvre move beyond um so you know <laughs> it's just like i remember the first book tour i did for the fight book i, I I felt like I had like accomplished something. And then I realized after the first book tour that I fundamentally lied through the entire tour because every story, I didn't read from the book anymore. I just told stories around the book, but every story I told had me as like a, a superhero like protagonist, always on the side of right and good. And I was like, yeah, you know, there are a lot of people who don't really think that. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I should give some voice, you know, the guy I held by his ankles outside of a window because he owed me some money. Maybe I should talk about that. Maybe that guy doesn't think I was defending the poor and downtrodden. Maybe. So it tends to be, Boonwell tends to be, it's a, a certain type of house cleaning just for me. Like the stuff I couldn't get out with a long, slow screw, I've actually been able to successfully kind of exercise with Boonwell. So, um, Were you able to do any of that with the inimitable sounds of love? <laughs> that's a good question <laughs> yeah uh let me let me think of how i want to answer that yeah 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 i was actually i was um like a, you know i very distinctly have talked about um my life in terms of back uh back before i lost my mind and then when i lost my mind and then when i got better <laughs> so so yeah, that book was very definitely written from one of those periods. That's and, why the three acts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, not so much the three acts, but the the book in total, which you know, um, uh, it was a threesome in four acts, so it's actually four acts. But yeah, yeah, that, that that's a, that's a nice parallel. And in, in in relationship to that book, that was a French, um, a French uh, this uh, arts group in Marseille had brought John Cage through and that's how they won me over. They go, we'll bring you through a residency for a month, you know, you do anything you want. And I said, well, what, what, what can I do? John Cage wrote a symphony. What could I do? I'm not going to write a, but well, what can I do that nobody else will ever pay me to do? And so I decided to write this play. But when I turned in the play, they said, you can do it six months after you go, no, I'll do it while I'm here. That's a challenge. So, I turned it in and the people all got a very funny look on their face. And they later explained to me that it was pretty much the guy who was the head of the association. I had written the story of him and his wife. Mm. It was eerily close to a very real circumstance. And, uh, and the guy misprinted the title in French, right? So I read a little bit of French and I was like, this is the wrong title. You have to, he was calling it the inimitable sounds of love. I go, that's not the title. The title is The Inimitable Sounds of Love of Threesome and Four Acts. That's the title. And we got into a big fight over it, and they were supposed to bring me over to do a second reading, not the debut reading, but a second one. And he was like, oh, fuck you. I go, oh, fuck you too, you prick. Then the guy who was the head of the major newspaper in Marseille was like, this is an outrage. This is state money. And, then, and he was champing my cause. He was going to write articles and editorials on it. And so I told somebody from the association what was happening. And they go, what? I said, no, the guy from the paper, whatever the paper there is called, he's good. He's really, he goes, you know who that guy is, don't you? <laughs> and of course, that guy was the third leg in the threesome. <laughs> so, it was, I mean, at, at that point, you know, it, it really was less my story and more 
the story of this little town, well, this place in Marseille. It was very strange. But yeah, all my stuff is drawn from real life. So, I mean, I'm following Hemingway's dictum of writing what I know, kind of. I think that you've kind of already touched on this. Um, Fight was the first um, book I I ever got by you. And that was, um, I guess I was young enough that that was probably my introduction to your work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a it was a meaningful one for me because yeah, I was um, I would have been in college at the time mm-hmm. and um, yeah that was uh, I was practicing martial arts less seriously than I do now but um, but just philosophically as a philosophical approach to martial arts was a big one. What martial art are you practicing now? Um, uh, so I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu now. Nice. Um, I, uh, for about 12 years before my move, I was doing uh, Russian martial art called Sistema. Yeah, I, um, it's demo. I did uh, some Shaolin Kung Fu as well, but Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has been my main thing for about five years now. Nice, nice, nice. And where are you again? Arizona? Yeah, I'm in Arizona. So I go back and forth between Flagstaff and Tucson mostly. So are you training the same place Roger trains or? or... Uh, Flavio's in Phoenix. Okay, that's right. That's right. Okay. All right. Uh, but our 16-year-old blue belt just got third in Worlds this weekend, which is pretty exciting. Oh, oh. Get away with that. Is, is that's what you're saying? Well, <laughs> <laughs> his dad hey. gym. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Because the guys come back on my team with third place. I go, oh, that's fantastic. You should be so proud of yourself for being beaten by two other men who are much better than you were. <laughs> I'm, 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 you see, I'm, I'm, I'm desperately paranoid about uh, the rest of the team going easy on me because I'm now older. So uh, the number one tool in my arsenal is mockery, and it's merciless. So when we roll, I'm guaranteed that everybody tries to murder me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually, they really do. So that's why I can't walk unless I'm at jujitsu. I save you it know, up all for that two hours a day. One of the other big jujitsu gyms in Arizona is owned by Maynard from Tool and Perfect yeah. Circle and Pussifer. Yep. He owns the one in uh, Cottonwood. We played, a show, we played a show with Perfect Circle at the time. I remember at the time he was training and he used to, my friend Jason Slater uh, was on tour with him and he kept challenging him on the tour. And Jason, we were together at Half Gracie's, like, you no, know, when a white belt. And uh, he was like, no, I don't want to do it. I got to play. I got to play. And then finally, you know, Maynard's crew was following them around and like, yeah, pussy, pussy. We got mats right here. And he was like, screw it. Okay. And so he rolled with Maynard and tapped him. And then uh, very soon after that, they were. <laughs> Invited off the tour. <laughs> I, I didn't, who saw that coming? I thought the guy would just take it up. I would have done the same thing. I would have thought the guy would just take it out the chin, but that was the end of them on tour. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. So now what, what belt are you? Where are you? How, where are you? I'm a purple belt. Yeah. No stripe, purple belt. Uh, I am a, I am a two stripe brown belt, but because it's a complete pirate ship, uh, I instituted this thing where, um, I will take your stripes. So, so we all became stripe thieves. That's old so, school, yeah. Uh, and then, and then, of course, then the coach was like, yeah, "Where are your stripes?" 
I said, well, you know, the guy took him. He goes, well, that's it for you. You're not getting any more. I'm not <laughs> giving you straight. You lost your stripes. So that's where I am right now. Is that like you lose you lose your stripes because you've been disgraceful or because it's like a flag football thing or somebody takes yeah. them? Then no, 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 no. You, you try, like, you know, you're trying to, if, you're, if we're rolling in gi, because we have no gi as well, we're rolling in gi, and the guy can take your stripe, it's on you. You lost your stripe. You know, and you can't go home and put another stripe on. The coach won't give you another. So you fight like hell to not get your stripes taken off. <laughs> or you choose not to care and like whatever. So, All right. Let's uh, I wanted to focus in a little bit on what you were talking about earlier in terms of um, kind of creative drives. I think you were already touching on it in terms of the psychology, your psychology for it. Um, where do you think? that drive to create comes from, because I was going to ask about how your creative drive manifests in different modes in terms of acting, in terms of um, writing fic prose, nonfiction, play, lyrics. Um, I think you touched on that a bit. So I guess I wanted to know where your drive comes from. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. At one point I was perceiving that I was a little too high strung, right? You know, with martial arts, that there was there's always this thing about the spiritual side or, you know, the less bodied side of your engagement with the sport. So you start to think, all right, well, maybe, yeah, you know, breathing and I'll relax and I'll do this stuff. And I go, I need an activity that I can focus this around. I know. I'll start gardening. That's a nice relaxing activity. Nobody ever had a problem gardening, so I start gardening. And then I find myself out in my backyard at 2.30 in the morning, killing snails and, uh, and replanting stuff. And I was like, yeah, this is pretty relaxing. And then I, re <laughs> I, I realized, of course, that the issue is not the activity, but the person behind the activity. And that if I decided, if I desired peace, you know, um, in, in, by which I mean very specifically a kind of quietness of mind, that it didn't have to do with digging in the ground. It just had to do with, you know, the kind of things that meditation brings to you, you know, just a, a quietness, which I'm fully capable and eager to do. But in general, um, you know, who was it? I was talking to somebody today telling them that idle hands are the playground. I, I, I have projects that I've been engaged with ever since, ever since, you know, I was a kid uh, and, you know, and, and and as soon as I could write, I began writing, you know, I mean, it wasn't like, oh, that's a skill I've managed to have. Cool. I won't do. I mean, I've been writing and sending letters to magazines. You should publish my writing. I mean, I have a rejection letter from Esquire magazine that I sent. I Where was I living when I sent it? I, I must have been eight years old um, and I, when I sent it in. So um, it, it is. It is a, a blessing to a certain degree, and it's also a curse um, because tied into that is, you know, ambition. And and I don't say ambition in the sense of, oh, man, I really want to go out like some Wall Street thing and make a whole huge load of jack. That I'll, I'll give you a prime example. Um, a, a, a woman friend of mine said, I think, uh, you know, she was really into young adult fiction, and she wrote the story, and I read the story. And I was like, this is fucking great. She goes, oh, you like it? I go, yeah, it's great. Pause. You should get it published. This was a foreign idea to her. She never thought of getting it published. 
she didn't imagine publishing as in the future when she wrote it and to me that was mind-boggling it's like how could you what how what drove you through the process was the idea that you were just going to write this and let your friends and family read it and that that was it you're just going to move on to something else and lives have played out that's sort of exactly what she's done she's like done stuff that i think that's pretty cool but it's a doing of the thing that 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 is enough for her and for me it's not so much a doing of the thing i'm doing the thing in order to communicate something and if only my friends and family are reading it i've not communicated as well as i might have if, if many more people read it right so um and i mean I, I see these experiences as transformative i've reached out done work that has transformed my life and it's always been a fairly positive positive exchange uh, i think that's kind of what happened here in in setting up this podcast yeah i would I would, hope, I, I would hope so you know? well i kind of took a gamble i was like oh, i'm totally doing the thing that i hate when other people do and just punishing this guy by sending him a message well like i said i I started to say no to the musical stuff uh, because I got burned a couple of times. And so now what I, it, you know, it takes a lot for me to not like your music. And in one band, I, I liked the music a lot, but I didn't like the singer. And, uh, and I said, I said, I can't, I can't do it. You guys don't need me. You're, you sound fine. And they go, no, we want you. And I go, yeah, but you don't need me. And they go, honest to God, just give me, tell me, honestly as truthfully as possible don't worry about hurting our feelings why you do not want to do this and i go your singer sucks and they go okay we're getting rid of him and they kick the singer i go that's not my intention he's your guy because nah we've been thinking about it for a while then that's the way and i sang and it is actually a, a kind of a cool project it's a small italian band and it didn't really go anywhere but the guys ended up being I didn't feel robbed. There was one other project where the guy said, I want you to sound like a cross between Axl Rose and Phil Anselmo. No, nah, no pressure there. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I laughed. I laughed because <laughs> like that's that's your goalpost. I got you. But you do realize you came to me, right? Right. So, yes. <laughs> you're, you're asking for my impression of what, you know, my interpretation of where, where those two would sit together. And I did a whole record for these guys. And then they did nothing. They did nothing with the record. And I actually did parts of it I'd like to hear. Well, I, you know, that's fine. So now what I say is, um, I, even if I like it, I won't do it unless there's a film component um, or a video component. Uh, and I just say that because, you know, I look at a Oxbow's cold and well-lit place video. And I looked at the numbers of people who have watched it. And I realized that more people have watched that video than have ever bought an oxbow record <laughs> and moreover when my kids hear new music they never say to me like i said to my parents hey i want you to listen to this song they'll say hey let me show you this song so that the modern mm, medium yeah. of change is visual so if it's not a video involved i won't do it at this point pretty much so but that that that's me doing some sort of gatekeeping but in general you know, Dharma gates are endless. A friend of mine said to me, he goes, why do you put your phone number on all your records? And I was like, ah, I don't want somebody sitting around going, yeah, you know, I got this million dollar check. <laughs> if only I had some way of getting it, <laughs> you know, yeah, you got it. You can get a hold of me. He goes, don't you worry? I go, what would I be worried about? Somebody's got my phone number. You, what are you going to out crank King crank? How are you going to do that? 
Are you gonna send me photos of your dick? Oh, that, oh that's gonna work. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Wait, wait till your friend finds out about like every website ever when you go on it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh no. Yeah. You gave him your phone number? Like, well, I mean, dog. I mean, it's, everybody's got my phone number now. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, you know, look, I. Yeah. It's. It. It got. It got kind of. You know, I would get calls where people would be sitting around drunk and they'd see the number there and they're like. Hey, I wonder if that's a guy. And they would call. And I got it from Henny Henny Youngman. It's not like I Henny Youngman up till the very end would um he could just he's in the New York phone book. You uh, hey shit, he may still be alive. I'm not sure. But he was in the New York phone book. You would just call him and he would answer the phone. And you'd say, Hey, Henny. He'd go, Yeah, hey, how you doing? Fine, what's going on? Not much. Got anything for me? Nope. Okay, have a nice day. <laughs> Gone. So that's Henny Youngman, right? So I said, oh, I could, I could, um, I'm not as popular as any young man. What's, what's going to be the problem? Oh. I was hoping that, um, just because you have this long history, all three of us in, on this podcast have, uh, uh, experienced writing, writing about music, but writing generally. Um, and Dylan and I have, I think been having this sort of existential crisis about what it means to write about music lately. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Dylan would do a better job of explaining that. Cause I think he like had the existential crisis about it and then shared it with me and then it became mine. Mm -hmm. So maybe he can articulate it well enough. Yeah. My, my, my bad Evan. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, one of the things that we were talking about before, uh, before having you on this episode, was um you know uh, I wrote for uh, wrote for I, I was a contributor at a, at a pretty popular like online webzine that mm -hmm. I, that I truly have no hard feelings towards this mm -hmm. is, I don't want this to come off the wrong way because I know that they're gonna listen to this but mm -hmm. um, I, I it got to the point where you know I'm just getting promo after promo in my inbox you know crushing death metal band from Denver you know like ripping mm -hmm. D beat from Philly and mm -hmm. uh, it just felt like, everything was just like more of a press release than it was actually hey yep. like we we really need you to like talk about this and and say what you feel and there's like there you know there's this entire ecosystem based on everything from pay-per-click ads to like yeah oh well like hey like you know x webzine wants to maintain like x relationship with this you know, record label you, you know what i mean like i made a joke in one article about kidnapping somebody from a very popular band um and i don't think i ever got a, a <laughs> i don't think i ever got another relapse records promo in my yep. inbox again <laughs> yep, yep, yep. and i you know what and if you're listening i i will get you um but like <laughs> uh so yeah sorry the full full circle existential crisis was like it felt like so much of you know contributing to the uh hardcore and punk and death metal ecosystem of just pay-per-click it it didn't feel like any of us were actually talking about the music in a critical way. Everything felt like an advertisement. Yep. Which is precisely what it is. Right. I mean, listen, I used to be editor in chief of EQ magazine. All right. It's a magazine for recording engineers and producers. And I, I did a microphone roundup. I wanted to do something really ambitious. Right. And so I think I, the idea would be to take 100 microphones and review them and have a, a smattering of the review, not even a smattering, a major portion of the reviews being reviewed by people in the community. So it was a community talking to the community. 
producers and engineers talking about their favorite mics, talking about some of the favorite mics. All the mic companies send us stuff. And I put out what I felt was a fairly successful issue. I'm at a trade show, AES or NAM, one of these music, you know, manufacturing deals inside the fence. I mean, nobody goes there unless you give a shit about these companies. And um, the guys from this microphone company called me and said, hey, could you come? We want to talk to you for a bit. Sure, cool. And they took me back behind their display. And I swear to God, had I not been me, they would have hit me. And they were really angry. And I'm like, what, what is the problem? You said, one of your mic, one of our mics, you called a prosumer mic. Um, and I go, I don't remember which I do remember. I reviewed six of your mics and they all got great reviews except for that one. And so it was, they were threatening to pull $80,000 of advertising from the publication. The guys at Sweetwater, we're threatening to pull from our other publications all over a guy, uh, uh, this guy, JJ, who was a producer um, who called it um, a prosumer mic. Now they scared the fuck out of JJ. So JJ began to repudiate his own review. Right? <laughs> yeah. He was scared now. Oh yeah. 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 And then I'm, I'm complaining about this at band practice and uh, uh, Oxbow's drummer says, uh, Greg, Greg Davis says, um, how is your magazine funded? I go, uh, what do you mean? And he goes, who, who pays to keep the lights on? I go, music, uh, music uh, instrument manufacturers, you know? He goes, then that's who you work for. And I go, get the fuck out of here. I'm ser-. He goes, well, you're serving a public interest? Really? Then the public can pay for it. They get the magazine for free. And I go, oh, no, no, I'm not liking the sound of this. Let me call the cats at Tape Op. And I call the guys at Tape Op. I go, hey, man, I'm, you know, I'm taking a lot of heat over this. And, what, how, what I? and they said, well, what we do is this. If I get a mic and I don't like the mic, I give it to somebody else in the staff. If they don't like the mic, I give it to somebody else in the staff. If nobody on the staff likes the mic, I go back to the company and say, nobody on the staff likes the mic. The people at the company will typically say, Why? We'll tell them they'll fix it and resubmit. All of that is a cult from the public. When the mic comes back and it's good, then we review it. You know, it may yeah. not it may not be for my purposes, but somebody it's about finding the right audience. And I was like, okay, that seems kind of sleazy to me. But and then I started thinking about it more deeply, right? Because I left the company. And, uh, and then I, of course, you know, you, you collect a bunch of stuff. I had a bunch of bass amps and stuff and I was like, easy, I could sell this stuff. Craigslist, get rid of it. Light my load and hard to sell. I go, imagine now that I'm getting 60, 70, 80 grand a year to work at one of these companies. And, and I've got to sell stuff like this, like every day. And I can't, so I went from, you know, actively and aggressively being upset about the system as it was to completely understanding that I had fucked up. I was in the wrong and the system as it stood, you know, that I should, I was serving the incorrect masters. There's a reason I stopped doing music business. And that's because the, the sense that you're having now is what was ruining, ruining my appreciation for musical art. And I, I, I fired myself twice over the course of, you know, years, and I've not regretted it, not even a little bit, not even a little bit, you know, so um, 
I, 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 you're, you're in the shit portion of the cake and it's just, there's nothing you can do about it. These people don't, they're not listening to the stuff. You know, you can tell from some of the reviews that they're not listening to the stuff. And, and if you really do, you have to say, well, who's, who's reading the stuff that I'm writing about that I've actually listened to. And I remember when I dealt with the woman who was the head of PR for Harper Collins and she was talking about the fight book. And I was like, okay, we're going to send this publication. That book. She's no, 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 we're going to do that. I was like, what do, we, what do you mean? She goes, do you know most of our sales come from the radio? I go, what are you talking about? Who People hear about the book on the radio and then they immediately go to their phones or their computers and they buy it on Amazon. That is the most effective two-step. So all this other stuff, servicing is un, un, unnecessary. So if you're writing music reviews and stuff for the only people that give a shit are the people that you least care about giving a shit, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, uh, I mean, I find, you know, I'm doing the, the closer for, for decibel every month now. And so I get the magazine every month and I read it and it, it really helps to get a magazine like this every month because it really sharpens my, my pencil on what I absolutely fucking hate about music. You know, <laughs> I mean, and, and I'm, if I'm, all these promo photos, you know, of, of <laughs> all the dude, the promo photos, those are up my sorry, that was my favorite part of every email. Was yeah. like, oh, cool, death metal band in a cemetery, that's pretty sick. <laughs> um, well, it, it but see, then it, it makes you, I mean, these guys are fundamentally just kids who didn't go outside to play, who learned how to play an instrument, and are like now then into being into doing everybody else's job. It's not, I can't just yeah. play. Now, now I've got a, I've got a radiate personality. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, uh, and then I've got to do these things and I got to, you know, okay, I'm helping you do your jobs. I see. That's cool. Eh, maybe not so much. So yeah, it can, it can, it can destroy you. And I mean, I haven't, you know, I used to write for Maximum Rock and Roll and Flipside back in the day and then Ripper and some of these but punk rock. And then at a certain point, I was like, nobody's reading. The only people in the bands are reading about the music. So and since then, if I've been writing about music, I've been writing about the people in music. So at the very least, I can focus on a personality of somebody who lives and breathes, who's opposite me on the other end of a phone or across a table. And that and that's always going to be of interest to me. But just listening to music to write about music, that's just going to, it's going to destroy you. Yeah. And again, I do, I do also want to, I want to be clear just for some of the folks who I know listen to us regularly. Um, I, I really did learn a lot and I valued all my time. And just the, when the pandemic happened was when uh, this all, it just came crashing down. I mean, I just, I officially no longer had anything nice to say. <laughs> and uh, we weren't really the type of publication that, had any interest in bad mouthing anyone right i mean right rightfully so like what you know punks and uh metalheads and everyone trashing each other to an extent only goes so far even though i i do think talking shit is extremely fun but yeah it just it all just came to a crux i was like i have i can't write anymore i can't do this hey i used to run this porn review site called the uh, skull game oh now you speak my language <laughs> yeah and uh, well this crazy russian israeli multimillionaire had tracked me down and said, I want you to start a blog for me to help me sell my stuff. And I go, what, what company do you have? He goes, well, I have this company called GameLink. And I just assumed it was games. I never looked at it because he was talking about paying me four grand, four grand a month to do a side hustle. So I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it. Yeah. Um, and at some point, I look at it <laughs> and I go, oh, my God, I'm re reviewing porn. That's kind of a heavy deal. And um, initially 
I started to do it like you would just do any like any music, you know. And I, this one, and he goes like, and he <laughs> he called me and he was like, well, you gave, gave a bad review to this porno, and and I was like, yeah, it sucked. He goes, you thought it sucked. I go, well, who did the review? Yeah, he goes, that's not the point. The point is somebody out there. This is going to be precisely their cup of tea. Your job is to hook that person up with what they like. And I go, I. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that trans porn that I didn't really like that much. He goes, that's, it's, it's not for you. We got that. It's not for you. Okay. But there's somebody out there who really likes trans porn, who wants that trans porn and you have to inform. I go, I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. So that's the way the system works. All right, cool. And so that, that helped us quite a bit. Of course, the life cycle of a porn reviewer. <laughs> it's like, I would always ask my friends, Hey, you want to review porn? And they were like, yes, they would be so happy. <laughs> I go, I'm going to bring some stuff by your house. They'd be like, all right. And I'd show up with like 20 DVDs and they'd be like, oh, <laughs> oh, I said, I'll give me the reviews next week. And, they, they, and at first they'd be super excited and they never thought about the prospect of what kind of hell they'd be in having to review 20 porno DVDs. Yeah, but I imagine you run out of stuff to say at some point. Yeah, man. The character <laughs> development I, in this one was... <laughs> I had one guy who had, at the end, he was writing his reviews just based on the covers. And I gave him a real hard time about it. And I go, thought, oh, you know what? That's at least as legitimate as anything else, right? <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, he was turning stuff in on time. I mean, he was actually <laughs> writing the reviews. So I stopped giving him a hard time about it. That's... And, and that's... <clears throat> I think that kind of reviewing as well as music reviewing when I'm really kind of thinking critically about what is my role here, because I also think in my dark moments, <laughs> uh, but also realistic ones that the only people who are going to read the stuff that I spend, I mean, multiple hours per week doing, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a side job that's, you know, for fun, I guess. Um, it's for fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, what it ends up, the only people are going to read this thing that I've dedicated hours and hours to um, and really been a perfectionist about and like woken up thinking about, am I being trite? Did I already use this analogy with something else? Uh, let alone if I go to the comments section and somebody says, this didn't sound like his hero is gone at all. Right. Um, <laughs> then, um, the only people who are going to read that are um, the, the band and maybe the label. Right. Right. That's right. And look, I, I just I'm participating in this uh, this podcast called the Let It Roll. And it's uh, it's started by the guy, one of the guys from Bloody Elbow. But he's really his sideline is he's completely obsessed with music, you know. And so we he brought me in as a guest to do two things. There was this uh, documentary on Netflix called a Hip Hop Evolution. So we we would watch one and then we would talk about it. And then that was followed by Sam Dunn's uh, Metal Evolution. And so we would watch a version and then we would talk about it. And we just we did the last one tonight, I, I think. And um, and he he, he look, he said, listen, because I was going into some exegesis about some. He's like, that's your opinion. And I go, yeah, right. He goes, you understand, like, I am more attacking this from the point of musical history. I'm a historian about this. I'm caring about historical accuracy. Give a shit about your opinion. I don't care if you like Limp Biscuit. That's not what the show is about. 
the show is about the historical significance of Limp Biscuit, and so you know. And I was like, oh, okay, so we have two poles because that's your pole. You're you're going to stand on the historical accurate, and if that gets you excited to write, because you're going to give a history lesson to anybody desiring to read that review, that's fine. But I I am you know if I'm turning a critical eye to something, I'm turning a critical eye again, weaving myself in the process. Does it give me pleasure? Do I believe it to be artistically significant? And so, but the tension between us is actually what I think makes it makes it a good show. But I, I'm not listening to music for historical reasons. I'm listening to it for the what it does, whether it pleases me or not. Mm -hmm. So, and that's the tricky thing I think at the end of the day with whether you're viewing porn or music or anything. I don't know. I, I guess we could call porn art, and that's a conversation for another podcast day um but uh it's really like how long do you describe orange juice to a person who's never tasted orange juice before you just give them a glass of orange juice right, right. you know like if i'm reviewing music and i'm spending i've written like three pages on a word doc about what kind of visions this conjures images this conjures for me and what analogies i can bring up for at some point there's a Bandcamp link embedded on the page so they're they should probably just like listen to it well and, and, and it was, i mean that's what people people are using it in the same way that people use uh a yelp right i mean mm. you know like i i love that band amen rock right yeah um, definitely um but it it wasn't until i saw them live yeah convinced and then even after i saw them live I had to read a couple of reviews to see because I don't want to get saddled with some record in which I only liked one or two songs or are the live experiences where they really shone, you know, brightly and I was going to get screwed. So it's it, I, I use it as a decision making tool. Um, and then, you know, and does that mean I read the whole review? Maybe not. If there's a numbering system next to it or like in decibel with the numbers. You know, I'll read a, a if it's out of 10, I'll read a four review won't buy it. You know, I mean, it would have really special for me to buy a, a, something that's got a four. But if it's got an eight or a nine and I've already liked the band and seen them live and want to, it's a, I'm making a buy decision. But you're really the, the ass end of the process. And, you know, as a writer, if you're writing, you want your stuff to be read and taken into account full measure. So they're just better things to write about. You know, I mean, interviewing bands is is, is can be a special a special thing, but I, I find myself that that at this point you got to be really careful. Like I did the liner notes for that Gang of Four box release, and I was a huge, huge fan. And the interviews were all great. Um, and then it was so great that I desired to, you know, I desired to kind of like say, "Hey, man, you guys should." I, I'm doing my own Substack. You should do this thing I do called Five Easy Pieces. I ask you five questions. And the singer agreed to do it. And then he like, send me the questions. So I sent him the questions. And then he was like fucking around. Didn't get him back to me. And then I lost him. I had to resend him. And I was like, oh, I see what's happening here. I'm, I'm starting to hate a guy who I really loved. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just never should have. I just, I should just left well enough alone. It's always that damage, the, the, you know, the danger that comes from you know, interviewing band. I mean, my favorite, one of my favorite band interviews is when I interviewed the Locust and the guy was fully on his, like, <laughs> this, this, uh, you know, I'm in a band thing. And I just started mocking him. 
like you know to his face in the interview he's like look um i have better things to do with my day i <laughs> walk your dog i go does that constitute better in your world? <laughs> and it was just like out and out, just mocking the guy in it. And then I wrote it up as it really happened. And so uh, I've never met the guy, Justin. I've never met him in person. I would actually like to do it. Uh, but, you know, my world's a little bit different because uh, jujitsu, you know, we just give each other so much massive shit that there's not a really lot of emotional energy behind it. But I got the sense from him that there was. And, of course, people who read it were like, oh, shit, what, what's happening here? <laughs> I'm like, Whatever, whatever. He's lucky I didn't ask him for his mother's phone number. That's something I'm prone to do as well. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that like our. Uh, again, like I'm just gonna—I hate this phrase, but it does actually encompass what I'm trying to say. The, the like extreme music community, like, really does like for for being uh, for for posturing so so well. Uh, we kind of get uncomfortable whenever there is like one of those moments, like you're just describing, where it's like it's clearly the two of you in conversation. Like this mm -hmm. is an authentic moment. Mm -hmm. You're you're kind of not seeing eye to eye. It's not really anybody's fault, but nonetheless, like that interaction is published as it was and and it's extremely entertaining and yet uh for uh, people sometimes don't know what to make of it or in a lot of cases a lot of publications would would, would want to shy shy away from it yeah thankfully thankfully they they left it in there but then of course you know my, my <laughs> no, uh, there was a long period of time where decibel wouldn't have me do anything for them yeah. Uh, apparently, I insulted the, uh, or the perception was that I had insulted Albert's wife, and uh, I was like, uh, "Whoa!" I was like, I, he was telling me something like, he, "Look, I grew up in a neighborhood where, uh, in this uh, Irish Italian neighborhood, for a couple of years, where the wedding uh, cars would go by, and all the husbands would run to the window and scream, sucker!" <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. So a guy tells me he's getting married and I do some version of that. I was like, ah, you sucker. <laughs> and apparently, you know, Albert got his feelings hurt. So he just stopped calling me. And I was like, oh, like, I think somebody told me, like, Albert got his feelings hurt. I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> I mean, what is that? That's got that really has nothing to do with me. So I was like, I, I, you know, I don't make my money writing for Decibel. So um, but then uh, I mean, and I was like out out for like i don't know like seven years and then suddenly he called me two years ago and was like uh yeah you could write for us i was like cool i'm glad to and of course then i wrote about it about what happened in in in, in one of the articles and he didn't say anything to me about it so and i'm still writing well, I, it, I, I just don't take this stuff you know i mean that's the benefit of actually have training martial arts all the time it's like there's nothing that's going to come out of somebody's mouth that's going to you know activate me in, into any kind of real action right they're just words so that's yeah martial arts for me has been it's hard to get too pressed over you know work work stress or social stress or anything like that when you know if i was just getting choked or my arm was almost broken or something you know, that was a more pressing detail than is this person mad at me possibly. Right, or, right. And then also a buddy of mine said, even when we go to compete, we're competing and I was all like, you know, like Rocky, I was all focused, you know, like owning in. And he's like, what are you doing? So, oh, man, I'm focused. He's like, 
you know what? You know what I tell myself before I get out there? I go, what? He goes, like, at least they're not punching me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess you. I guess you're right. So then I, I relaxed about that too. You know, it's just, just easier going through life relaxed, especially when that's not my preferred mo. So, I think just to bring it back to music writing, I there are some people who write about music who are probably never going to get the audience that I think that they deserve, except for the recent um recently passed greg tate i think mm -hmm. um but even he probably maybe didn't get the respect or um acknowledgement that he he deserved until after he passed mm. uh, but currently you've got daphne brooks um uh who writes a lot about history of black women in different genres of music mm -hmm. uh sarah marcus writes about riot girl but these are books, you know, these are, uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, we're not here to entertain by Kevin Mattson. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess I'm curious to know who the audience is for that. And, um, it's just such a different approach to writing about music. And that to me is kind of true music writing, um, rather than, than, um, writing reviews and I, I i don't want to denigrate what i do because i like what i do and i like the people i i write for um and i i do just write positive reviews but not if it's not sincere right i just won't write about it if i don't like it right um k-pop theory yeah yeah um but i guess i want to know is there an audience for music writing um and what to you is good music writing I don't think there is. I mean, this guy who I do the Let It Roll podcast, I, I was guesting on his show. He's had a couple of these cats on the show, and and he's the audience. The the musical historian is the audience. I mean, you know, Lester Bangs for a period of time got everybody gassed up on this idea because he was kind of this Hunter S. Thompson esque character, Legs McNeil, like. <laughs> I'm writing the story. I'm in the story. I'm part of the story. The story is me. I am the story and the music and it's all happening around me. And that, that stuff is intoxicating and, and, you know, it, it attracts people and draws them in. But at this point, you know, um, like, uh, like he had on Gary Giddens and what he didn't know, I said, you know, my stepfather was a journalist for years and uh, one of the people that he used to complain about routinely when he was working in, in, the, uh, in the, not for the LA Times, but for uh, New York Post before uh, Murdoch bought it, it was like, Gary's just a, such an insufferable bore. And my stepfather was doing music reviews, like he, but his big thing was salsa, you know? So you know, Ray Barreto, Tito Puente, all that kind of stuff that he was reviewing. And he, he, so Gary Giddens was a jazz guy. And he just, he found the guy, the guy just destroyed anybody's love. He felt destroyed anybody's love for jazz in, in his just really academic way of picking through. And I go, look, I've been doing music for a long time. Is there anybody who's writing, I find especially exciting about, and I can't read any of them. I mean, Legs McNeil is a good friend, a friend of, uh, a friend of mine a friend of mine who also used to write about music, who I can read his writing on music, Dean Kuypers, who had been the West Coast Bureau Chief of Spin for many years. I can read Dean's stuff on writing, but I, 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 I've not been a, his friends, I have not been able to read Legs McNeil because the scene that Legs came up in, I, I remember very well, you know, I was part of that 
scene, but I was always always part of that scene as an outside. And I remember cats like him, and I remember him, you know. And I just thought he was a really marginal character who, you know, just happened to be in the right place at the right time and had a gift with words. That's fine, good for him. I'm not going to read your book. The only person that it's actually changed my life who writes about music, and and it's uh, his name is uh, he used to write for Sounds. And uh, Steve, I don't, not Steve. Uh, God, Nico would know. I could Steve Chick. I want. I, I I can dig out his name. And the only reason I say that is because he wrote, and a couple of people, uh, Biba Koff, who writes uh, for Wire. I like I like his stuff because, um, it, well, in Steve's case, he his first review of the first Oxbow show he ever saw completely changed how I approached the music because it was clarity full. And he, he pretty much said that he pretty much said exactly what had happened that the first Oxbow show he saw, he didn't know what he was saying, but the first Oxbow show he saw was in reality, the last whipping boy show. And what that said in my mind is if Oxbow was just going to be, weird whipping boy i'm not i shouldn't even do it so i really need to re-examine in a performative sense what i'm doing on stage why i'm doing what i'm trying to do with oxbow and do that and not and he and he gave me license to do that really music writing as far as i'm concerned and then of course uh albini um everybody knows him from his music but the stuff that he wrote on me i became an albini fan because his writing on music i thought was opinion full and really well-rounded so uh, between steve bibikoff and and uh and the other steve uh I, I haven't really found anybody who's writing on music that i like and i have to say that includes me <laughs> like i don't like i do not read the stuff that i write on music it's like i remember interviewing peter north once the porn star and him telling me time i found amazing that he watched his own porn and we we had this divide and like clearly it made no sense to me that he wouldn't and then to him it made no sense to him that that he would and why would i even think that that was something he would do he was there right so i think that that's kind of how i am about music writing it had you have to be fueled by a real fire to understand or appreciate what's happening musically to, for it to be worthwhile. And you just can't do that on a, on a schedule where you got, you know, they throw you a bag of 10 CDs or buy whatever you're listening to download codes or whatever. It's impossible. It's impossible to do. That kind of brings me to two topics. I was interested in talking with you about. And one is um, you, you work so uh, prolifically and it seems like you're never not creating. Um, does that mean that you don't experience writer's block or you push through writer's block? I guess the reason I'm asking is because given a bag of 10 CDs means that I'm trying to create something that I would usually only feel if I were feeling inspired um, and trying to just conjure my own inspiration. Mm -hmm. um, and so... It, what do you do in terms of creating at such a constant rate? Have you managed to just have inspiration be there or work, even if you're not feeling particularly inspired? 
Um, for me, it's it's a it's a it's a weird process thing, right? Um, oh shit, sorry. Um, it's a weird process thing, and it's like, um, for example, I write the Substack that I do. Look what you made me do. The Substack. Typically, I'll write it Friday night, right? Because uh, it gets me close enough to when I publish it on Sunday. Uh, that if things change and I need to make alterations, I, I, I can do it. So it's usually 2,500 words and I'll do it Friday, Friday night. You know, the kid goes to bed and, and you know, my youngest daughter goes to bed now and I'll get to writing. Um, and so um, that's, that's the process. That's the schedule. And uh, like this week, I, I had a tough week this week because I absolutely positively did not want to what I wrote about, which was the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp case, right? But the fact that my mind kept returning to it unwillingly uh, in my mind meant, okay, the, the, the process is calling out for me to, to pay attention to what's happening. And that means I got to do it. And so I said, okay, what? And I thought I saw a great way into the story, and it was a story about shit. I had a shit story that I wanted to use to lead into it, and then I forgot it. Like I it came to me in the middle of the night, he's like, "Oh, I'm going to tell that shit story," and I forgot it. And so now I'm stuck, right? Because I know the shit story is the way to start it, but I can't remember the shit story. And Friday is like clicking away, and the kid is, and I got like I got it, I got it, I got to do something. And then I realized, no, it's very simple. <laughs> I could either talk about how I forgot the shit story and then start to Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, or I could go, I could zig another way and, and talk about, you know, which is what I did, talk about it, animal fucking, which is, you know, in my mind, a corollary for, <laughs> for what that whole trial in America's <laughs> obsession with, you know, these two disgusting human beings is, is about. So um, I, I don't, you know, it's usually, and no, if I don't do the sub stack, it's not, I don't get fired. I don't, I don't, I don't suffer any kind of, there's no, it's free. People pay for it, but they don't have to pay for it if they want, you know? So it's usually just, you know, like you put on your gi, you get on the mat and certain things happen. If you don't put on your gi and you don't get on the mat, those things don't happen. Put your ass in the chair, you know, you got, you got the day that you have to do, you got a couple hours or you can stay up all night if you want try that try that and then you say okay well let me just i can't really fuck around for eight hours all night i got it it's just easier to write and then it, it then it then it happens but i also there's a story called the three sailors gambit and these three sailors play chess together and this guy is watching them and is clearly they're terribly unschooled and uh and he, he says i'm gonna i'm gonna figure out they're just winning beating all these people in chess were way better than they are and they don't even don't even know the names of the pieces and so he gets them drunk and says how did you I said well we traded our souls and i mean obviously this is magical realism right so they tra we traded their souls for this crystal that makes us great chess players and they can can i see it he shows it to him and he says you can't see anything but we look inside it and we see the board and we make we make the moves that are on the in the crystal on the board and yeah, go, how's that? Is it working out for you? He goes, well, yeah, clearly we're winning. Go, after a certain point, though, we started to think the one's winning. And so we'd look in the crystal, it would suggest a move 
we would go, well, that seems crazy. And we wouldn't do that move in the crystal. And then, the, and then they got quiet and they go, then things got really terrible and scary. And they decided that they had made a deal with the devil and that they didn't want to go to hell alone. So that's why they all three played together. And they also realized never doubt the crystal, <laughs> right? Just do what the crystal says and nothing gets horrible, scary or terrible. And that's kind of how I apply myself to the creative process. It's like, it's, it's, it's just there. If I, I can fight it as long as I want, I can try to not, but it's it's right fucking there. I didn't want to write about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, but it was right there. It was it was there the whole week. And it was dictating that I would write about it, and I was resisting and fighting, and I was struggling. And Friday I had nothing, and then I just I fucking tapped out. I was like, all right, all right. I got letters from people saying, "What are you gonna say about? It? What are you gonna go? Are you gonna address?" I was like, all right, all right, okay, all right. So. Yield, yielding to the world around you is typically what what prevents bad things, and your resistance is what fucks you up. This thing, you know, um, and I mean, especially if you're writing fiction, you know, and even if you're writing nonfiction, the story will take you into to weird places, you know. Um, I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to now help this guy with a book that he it's about New York gangsters and mafia, and he he he's written the book personal firsthand stuff uh he really needs an editor and i set him up with an editor who was had been pursuing the same story and then the guy got a couple calls that scared him <laughs> and so he said you know what i can't really do you know two of these main cats are in prison they murdered over 250 people these were prolific you know mafia killers and so he gets a call about it. He gets nervous. He's he's off. So now I'm trying to find this guy. I know the editor for the for his book. Um, and, but I mean, clearly that guy was. He's like, I'm going to resist. I'm going to resist. And then they got him. And he was like, I'm not going to resist. And sometimes it just makes sense to, to not resist. You know, he doesn't need this book. He needs to live more than he needs his book. So fuck it. He made the right choice, I guess. But for me, it's uh, I'm I'm all about not resisting. I resisted jujitsu, and the rest of the time, you know. I can tell. Yeah, I don't. I don't really want to do this Boonwell tour, but uh, th there is there, my resistance is based on nothing, right? I'm, well, I mean, maybe COVID or you know, that kind of thing, but uh, and I don't want to miss jujitsu. You know, I mean, these are things that, that you don't do with the record. You don't. You don't do the videos. You don't do any of that stuff. The, the process, the process draws you through it. You know, I'm on, I'm on the escalator. There's no getting off of this, right? Hmm. Yeah. That path of least resistance, and sometimes you don't resist in jujitsu. Sometimes you kind of give them what they want. I guess. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I a little know, bit more. Yeah, I'm not going to spend the energy. You know, guy wants me to start in his guard, or you, side could you go go ahead? I, I'll work where we. I'll work where we end up. You know. Right. I'll, I'll yeah. let you make mistakes. You know. <laughs> so, I but feel I, like when I start a jujitsu match, if 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 I'm not starting it. It, it, if I'm the one who has to start it, I've got infinite options. But as soon as they make a decision of what they're going to do, I've got like two options. Right. So sometimes I'm a little bit more defensive that way. Yeah, you see, I mean, I, I've had the experience of some guy, a wrestler naturally, hit me with a low ankle pick and then just hold me for six minutes. And that's a fucking drag. I mean, back when I was a blue belt, that happened once. And it was like, yeah, I'm sure you felt like you won something. What did you win? You know? Mm -hmm. And they've actually changed it. IBJJF has changed the rules.
you know, not reward wrestlers necessarily for, for doing stuff like that. Right. But then I also realized it wasn't his fault. He did, you know, that's how you win the game. That this is the rule set. So at that point you learn, okay, I need to set this up a little bit better. Ah, I'm going to pull guards. Yeah, that works. Yeah. And it seems to work. So you talked about your sub stick. And firstly, I wonder if, uh, the Depp heard piece was, uh, kind of a breath of fresh air after the f former piece, the previous piece on mass shootings. Well, me, I read them in, in anti-chronological order. So I read mm -hmm. the herd depth one, and then I read the mass shooting one. And I felt like, I don't know, in some ways writing about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard might've been harder to do, but. Well, of course, you know, the killings proceeded apace through the whole through the whole trial as well as well as the writing as well as Friday I told people I, I said I, I re retweeted it out said, you know, Monday's going to roll around and some of you are going to be dead. And uh so maybe you should read the piece now. Mm -hmm. Uh and then, of course, the tally over this past weekend was 22, 22 killed out of, I think, three mass shootings. So and then I, you know, then I want to do a really dark piece. And it may happen as I roll into this Friday about can you really consider three people dead a mass shooting? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, if somebody said, Eugene, we're going to have a mass orgy and I just show up and there are three people there. I go, that's a threesome. It's not a mass orgy. You know, so can we, and of course, you know, this is, these are common themes I touch on, right? Sex and death, again, sex and death, but because I think that's a little too dark right, right now, but we'll see what Friday, what Friday means. But, it's like Georges Bataille's French philosophy is all yeah. about erotism and. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, the thing is, somebody ahead. asked me to run for mayor of my town today. And the city council, well, the mayor, it, there's no single mayor, but it's run by a city council. And they asked me to run for city council. And this is a guy who knows, knows, knows a lot about me. He goes, you could win this thing. Um, and, um, and, uh, and I, I, I said, no, I don't have the time. You know, Tuesday night, you guys have your, your city council meeting. I got band practice. I got jujitsu. I got a two-year-old. My youngest kid is two years old here. I got, I got. And then I said, yeah. well, how much time? He goes, 30 hours a month. Yeah, maybe. Let me think about it. Let me think about it. And that would be an interesting change because, you know, the city council right now is full of people taking money from Facebook to make decisions that counter the health of this community, the desire to keep it as a, as a feeder community for wealthier communities around who need their working class folks. They need the waiters and the gardeners and their carpenters and all, you know, they need them to be close by and, and to, you know, if the neighborhood's too nice, it's just going to end up being another neighborhood of rich people that who then have to find people to do their gardening. Right. So mm -hmm. it, it keeps it impoverished and, and, and low income, but, you know, there are $1.5 million houses here. It's not low income, you know, let the town do what it would. So maybe the city council needs me right now, but I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if this is going to be a clever use of my time, but I'm thinking about it. Well, you've done just about everything else. It seems like. Yeah. Well, like I said, with the play, what, 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 you know, what would they pay me for that? Nobody else would pay me for How about this governance? Mm -hmm. But I'm, 
I just, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I find the whole situation here in America so aggressively depressing that it's a friend of mine who's another writer, a bass player and a writer uh, from New York, and I was like. He's like, you know, I'm seriously thinking about it too. I go, what does your life here offer you? Like, what does it offer? You know, I I, I drive through past this place called Crescent Circle. That's about half a mile, mile from me over on the wealthy side of town here in Palo Alto, where you have like, I don't know, $8 million houses. And I'm like, and I drive by them, you know, when I'm going to the post office or going to wherever. And I like, what is it? What does this eight million dollar house offer them? <laughs> well, like, is like unless they have a pool in the backyard, they're not near the ocean. They're not. They're in a flood zone. Actually, they, you know, the kids go to school with a bunch of other fucked up, you know, the offspring. I, I, I don't see that anything here. I can't, I can't see that there's anything you couldn't get someplace else with the extra dollop of, hey, I'm not gonna get shot today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. During the time we've been talking, I I've heard gunshots. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even kidding. I heard gunshots outside the house, and I'm sitting here hoping, hope I don't get hit by a stray bullet. I mean, is that is that how is that how I need to be spending my nights? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So you 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 talked a little on your podcast about finding another place, huh? Yep. Yep. Found it. Found it. And, and put a down payment on it. So that's fait accompli. Done. Mm-hmm. Fuck it. F- fuck America. During, I, uh, during, uh, I think during quarantine, Ghana was setting up this repatriation campaign. Um, and some people in my life are part of the diaspora. And uh, that's started to seem a little bit appealing. Yeah, I'm not going to Ghana. I'm going to Spain. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I did an analysis of countries and political. It's like, look, they made it through World War One, World War Two, <gasps> Korean War, <laughs> the Gulf Wars, Vietnam. Outside, okay, oh yeah, okay, you had Franco, okay, but uh, you know that was that was a very different deal, you know. Uh, and, and now you have some Basque separatists, and I've got some friends who are Basque. And, you know, it's kind of a drag, but it's nothing to the degree that you're going to get shot in the supermarket, man. So you know. Um, I, 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 I'm hoping at this point to make houses finished. That's what I'm hoping, you know. Mm-hmm. So. You mentioned your Substack, and this is a topic that uh, Dylan and I touch on now and then, just because it's a really present issue. Um, your with your Substack, I imagine you feel a certain amount of liberty to do what you want creatively, because. Mm-hmm. Because you're really your own boss, um, yep. but um, it's also a, kind of a modern day zine DIY project. Mm-hmm. Uh, last podcast, Dylan compared podcasts to the modern day zine. Uh, you want to elaborate on that, Dylan? Yeah, I think that like the way in which like someone, uh, someone maybe like used to look at a copy of Maximum Rock and Roll. Uh, is now kind of the way that they want to access like uh, new ideas or new sounds. They just look to a, to a podcast. There's there's an infinite number of, of awesome hardcore and punk podcasts. There's also an infinite number of ones that make me uh, want to vomit. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the point. Um, and so I think that they're, they're really the new zine now. Uh, Eugene, uh, Eugene, we talked a little bit earlier. He mentioned um, 
people want to show people new songs mm-hmm. they, they want to show them like the the visual element first and foremost right. i think the same thing kind of goes with with like hardcore and punk podcasting mm-hmm. um a lot of younger kids uh they uh, they've always grown up with with the internet and they you know so they they use it to they use it their to their advantage to find new things and when they don't understand how to like talk about music or how to classify it mm-hmm. they, they'll turn to a podcast uh, i think and there again there there are plenty that uh, there are plenty to turn to so yeah, i think that in that sense they really are the the, the, the modern zine um, mm-hmm. like, like like we've been talking about this whole time like i don't know if there's a big a big audience anymore for someone to just like sit down and and read 800 words about um you know a hardcore band they're probably not going to do that yeah it de- it depends right i mean what you know okay he he's ended up being um he's ended up being kind of a lunatic but i remember one of the early discussions i had with the former head of the proud boys here gavin McInnes. Where he, when he asked me to write for him at Vice, um, I had just come off of having written a piece for GQ. And he asked me to write a piece on uh, fighting, I think he actually asked me to write a piece on. And I wrote the piece on fighting. And he was like, yeah, not this. And the piece I wrote on fighting was great. It would have worked great in GQ. But I hadn't read Vice at the time, and I didn't really... And he's like, you know what? I want, I want, and he presaged this in a way that that I I thought was notable. And he said, I want you to write it like you're writing an email to a friend. And I and I and I I agreed to do so, but in my head I thought, who the fuck is gonna want to read that? Yeah. And at the same time, on a parallel path, my boss from my day job, um, and I'm I was at EQ magazine at the time told me at a meeting said that uh in the future people are going to read our magazine on their phones now at that time i had like a nokia flip phone and i was like he's out of his fucking mind i'm not reading anything off of this you know this is torture it's bad enough to read these little texts that i'm getting on this phone i can't i can't i didn't presage uh, 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 uh smartphones you know which is what everybody has now right something that essentially mini computers where it's quite comfortable to read on the phone he he, he was right and and gavin actually was right that the changing nature of the internet ha- means that everybody thinks that they're a writer of course oh, yeah and, yeah everybody's reading and everybody's reading what everybody's writing so they all feel like they're all same part of the same but you know good writers are very 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 hard to find and it becomes if you're a good writer owning a message that it that that does so you know it was full recognition of how it how it is that people now read things but at the same time doing it better like look <laughs> you know Eddie Van Halen, I, I just said pick him out of the air. Eddie Van Halen didn't need a synthesizer to make effective music. H- however, how he played guitar should have accommodated how he understood what synthesizers do musically, right? If that, if I'm making sense, sense to you. So, um, you know, so the stuff I write now is maybe more affected than I, I would care to admit by Gavin's original dictum of writing it like you're writing an email to a friend. I could go back to writing the kind of e- easily writing. I just page or ad week, one of those, I can't remember which um, about Juneteenth. 
that was maybe, you know, just very, a little bit more scholarly and, you know, but that's not how real people read anymore at all. And, and I'm writing in order to be read. So, you know, whatever way I could communicate, I think I'm, I'm I don't feel like I'm cheating. If I don't want to write like that, then I don't. And then I can put it in a novel or write some book of nonfiction or something. But I, I think, you know, I think how you, how you apply yourself to the task is really where the art comes in. So, but yeah, you, you know, this is, yeah, these, these are places to go. And, and strangely enough, I, I, I'm not a big consumer of, and I remember seeing my grandmother for some reason thought I was into sting when she was alive. (laughs) And so as a birthday present, she gave me a bring back the night, you know, I was like, ah, grandma's so cool and well-meaning but i don't want to watch but one day i was bored i was like let me watch this sting thing right and he's with branford marcellus and then they asked him they were asking him to play the theme from the flintstones and they had just asked him they said well what do you like to listen to at home and sting was like well i have so much of my own music in my head that i don't listen i was like get the fuck out (laughs) house you've got nothing by the police and that's it you don't have any musical background other than just the police and you come on i don't really believe it and so then Bram from marcellus goes play the theme from the flintstones he goes i don't know how mm-hmm. no how can you you beat me everybody knows the theme from the flintstones and so the band just ignores sting and they start playing the theme from the flintstones thing jumps in and begins playing the theme from the flintstones because of course he's always known it right and i used to think well sting what an ass what an until i and now i'm at the point where i my perception of time is such that i don't a friend of mine she's no longer speaks to me at this point said oh you do a substack i do a substack maybe we could point our substack people to each other and but you should read mine first and you know, a week goes by, a couple of weeks go by, and I just can't bring myself to read hers. I just can't. And then finally, I broke down and read it, and it was actually really good. But at this point, she had already stopped talking to me because I kind of shined on that. I was like, my audience is not going to want to read your stuff, and I'm very sure your audience is not going to want to read my stuff. So why you write about fashion? I'm writing about something else. So why? What? Let's just be friends. And so she got her feelings hurt and stopped talking to me. And then after I read it, I was like, oh, this is pretty good. I wouldn't mind. I think maybe our audiences might overlap, but I absolutely don't have a stomach for reading other people's stuff unless it's just aggressively good from the outset. Of course, you don't know that if you don't try to read it. It's like green eggs and ham. So, but I don't have time to have these conversations with myself because, you know, I'm promising other things to other people that need to be done, you know, Um whether it's you know my my day job at this point or, or you know the side things with decibel or whatever stuff needs to be done yeah no, that, that makes that makes sense i, I mean I, I wish i could embrace i wish i had time to sit and listen to other people's podcasts i mean the sad thing is if i'm on i will listen to your podcast i did you said uh i listened for 10 minutes to make sure like it wasn't going to be an embarrassing enterprise. Glad we made the cut. Yeah. Then, yeah. I, then, I, then I was like, cool. That, that, that's cool. And then, you know, and then, uh, and then I'll tweet it and put, uh, post it up again. And, you know, and I, and I'll, I'll, I'll listen to it again. Like I do it in the car. So, uh, you know, I'm now a Californian in that regard. Every, all the things happen in the car, but, but general, you know, I just can't, I just can't, I just can't. 
I mean, and and I'm in. It's it reminds me of that Talking Heads song, "Life During Wartime." I I I don't have clocks here in my house that run backwards, you know, and uh, so I, I feel very much much like the two thirty at night killing the slugs in my backyard, relaxation school of gardening. I feel uncomfortably driven to get stuff done uh, because it's not like I got a whole lot of time left, right? I'm not going to live to 120, so I got to get cracking. I would, in your experience, this is going back to, you mentioned the friend who's doing a sub stack. I wanted to go back to a friend you mentioned earlier who'd written a young adult story or a novel, um, but wasn't interested in publishing it. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was thinking about um, outsider art um, and artists like Henry Darger. You know Henry Darger, I assume? No, I don't, actually. Um, so Henry Darger was this, there's a band named after his creations called the Vivian Girls. Mm -hmm. And Henry Darger was the school janitor who never talked to anybody. And then when he died, they found what's possibly the world's longest novel and just like acres of paintings in mm -hmm. his apartment mm -hmm. and he never intended for anybody to see these things mm -hmm. but it was his really his lifeblood was mm -hmm. creating this art mm -hmm. um i guess other ar outsider artists are people like daniel johnston and wesley willis yeah, yeah. Uh, but they did kind of market their own music um but in terms of making art that you don't intend to have an audience or be marketed to an audience i guess with regard to writing music and podcasts, how does money and the audience affect the work? Well, okay, look, let me, one of the first times I ever took LSD, right? And it was, I was actively opposed to it for, for, uh, for, I think my roommate at the time in college was taking it and the, I don't know if you've ever tried to be with somebody who was tripping when you weren't tripping, but it's terribly dull. It's ter it's like it's hey, awful. Hey it's man, awful. you've been staring at that fucking rock for twenty minutes. Can we go do so? We're just in a completely different place, right? It's not it's not cool for the people who are not tripping, and certainly not cool for the people who are tripping to have me around, right? So finally, I I I, I break down and I take it, and I'm having these kind of phenomenal thoughts, right? And I'm trying to communicate them to people at the time. And then I realized I, I can't, I, I, I can't, I feel, I feel myself tapping out. And then I realize I go, wait, 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 wait. Like I, 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 I find myself saying it's enough that I have these great thoughts in my head. It doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter to me that I can't communicate these great thoughts in my head. And I said, you know what? I see plenty of guys like that who have great thoughts in their head who can't communicate them. I call them homeless. Those are homeless guys. Those guys are typically mental, people in mental institutions have great ideas that they can't communicate. The key, the, the muscle bearing building exercise is in communicating those ideas, you know? And there's a guy, uh, a Portuguese writer who I like, Pessoa, which yeah, is Fernando. Yeah, exactly. And he's just like Darger, right? Where they he he worked these kind of crappy office jobs for years. He died. They get into his single room where he lived alone, you know, as this kind of, you know, anchorite for, for years. And they open this trunk and they find all this great fucking writing. And it's like, I don't say you have to do me. I don't say you have to like 
you know, done people at Harper Collins until they listen to you. I don't say you have to do that, but you got to get that shit out of your house. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, gotta, you don't want to be the next Kafka or Dickinson who you got to get it into the world. You got to get it into the world. Even I don't care. Take that. Look, it, I was walking out of the 14th Street subway station, Union Square, in New York City. I stepped over this magazine. I stepped over some little circular. You know, and I was like, ah, I wonder what that was. And I got half a block away. I go, I should go back and get it. And I was like, yeah, fuck that. It'll be there later when I come back. I go, it probably won't be. I get like two blocks away now. I'm late for high school. I go back to the subway station. I find it. I pick it up. And it's a copy of a magazine called The Valley of Addict. And I take it and I read it. And it's genius. I said, fuck. This, it's, it's, I mean, it was like a fanzine. I did you know, I go, ah, I'm going to do, I'm going to do something like this. It's, I'm going to do ah, the birth of tragedy. So I started publishing this magazine called the birth of tragedy. And the second is each issue had a theme issue, sex, depression, fear, power, God. Right. So in the fear issue, I have Lydia lunch. And as traveling at the time with this guy, who's now a famous photographer called Richard Kern, and so Richard Kern had taken the photos of her that I ran in the issue, and but I got to talking to him, and we talked, and he was like, "Yeah, I used to publish a magazine called The Valley of Addict." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, "Whoa!" Every issue was dedicated to a certain drug, so there was a heroin addict, you know, the the, the addict, the the the, the, the coke addict, the, the so you got the Valley of Addict one. I go, "You did that," and I told him the whole story, and it was like this weird. You know, again, like the sailors in the three gambit, the, the the universe was talking to me and I was resisting and resisting. I fucking buckled, went back and got that. And, and you know, Kern has been a known associate of mine since then. This is like the 80s. He took the cover of uh, the photograph for the cover of uh, Oxbow Serenade in Red. I mean, you know, and the, the Lydia sang on, on King of the Jews. I mean, it's just these have been these, you know. These have been moves that have made a lot of sense, you know, so you got to get the stuff out into the world. I don't care. I don't care if you pursue it. Just put it in a box, put it somewhere, put it outside. Some it'll 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 benefit people a lot more than if you die. And then, you know, people find Pessoa stuff and like, oh, wow, man, this guy was a genius. I, I feel like the 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 like the the Dargers of the world I will probably cease just because, again, like uh, every. Uh, every small child now like already has like an internet account so like it's like when they die it's like oh man we went back through his old tiktoks yeah. it's like you know he was pretty funny he had some heat in there um <laughs> we're gonna have to preserve these tiktoks and like his one about when you're at the gym and all the squat racks are taken yeah pretty good hey listen pretty good I actually interviewed this guy john cameron mitchell and i just tweeted edwig it yeah, good for you. Yeah. And he uh, well, he's using the they them pronouns. So they they were saying you haven't I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's happened to our culture, but shows like America's Got Talent and there's other shows, they've completely destroyed music to the extent that there used to be kids out there forming bands, doing bands and doing music. Now these kids are deciding to appear on these shows, these weird competition shows that tear your soul out. You're not doing your own music. That's dead. You know, yeah. you're doing other people's music. And then the audience decides that 
that you're the shit and you're Justin Bieber and then they then the record labels come in and they hire songwriters for you and you're just a paid monkey. There's no spiritual investment here at all. And I was like, my God, uh, they're right. They're absolutely right. <laughs> the, 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 these shows are not your friend. And if you asked me 20 years, 25 years later, if shows like that would still be around, I would have told you no. And I'd have been wrong about that. So... Yeah, we we talk almost every episode about like hardcore punk, you know, metal, grindcore, like all these, all these, all these uh, genres of music for for literal fringe lunatics. Right. And we're we're all on TikTok. We're all on it. Like our whole subculture is now facilitated by tech oligarchs. Yeah. And to uh, act like we have any control over any of this, uh, for for an example, a great band. Uh, based out of the Pacific Northwest called wake of humanity. Mm. Um, they've toured, they've been to, you know, they've been to Europe, they've been all over the U S they have records out. Mm. Um, their Instagram got deleted. I don't remember why I don't remember what happened, but their Instagram got deleted and it was in, uh, in, in the world of hardcore in 2022 specifically, it, it's almost like they didn't even, ex- they don't even exist anymore. They, they got it. Now they, they made a new one. They have like 150 followers. And so now they just like, look like, every uh new local band trying to like start from scratch and like nobody really knows what happened and it it it, it has it has fucked with me to the extent where i'm just kind of like like wow like one day one of these platforms which really does carry because again we have this digital digital attention economy based on on likes and follows <laughs> not actual revenue or capital in any way shape or form that's supporting mm-hmm. the subculture mm-hmm. uh if if your account goes down your whole project goes down And, um, you know, I love all those guys and I I hope that everything gets back up and running because I want to see them play again. But just Mm -hmm. the fact that a stupid, uh, a a, a stupid social media account could. Oh, my, my, my wife had, um, keep in mind, I'm I'm about 1.5 miles from, from Facebook's headquarters here. And my wife Mm -hmm. had her account, um, for reasons unknown to her, slant, shut down. Just nothing. She had not done anything objectionable. Attempted redress, and then there was an article that came out about the woman who was a um, she was an influencer, and her thing shut down. And she figured out if she slept with people at Facebook, um, that they would get her page back up. Sleeping with a succession of. Of, of dudes who were like worked at Facebook to get her every time they did her, got her page down. And that's, and as I go, really, that's the fucking model, huh? That's it. So if my page gets, and I got, I got dinged at one point by PayPal and they said, you can't, we're not going to take, and I have a friend who's a general counsel at PayPal now, right? He's like high up. And I started to complain to him completely unsympathetic. I go, I, he goes, what reason did they give you? I said, they said I was a pornographer. He goes, well, Sounds like they were right. I go, what do you mean? I wasn't producing pornography. I wasn't selling pornography. You know, I ran Skull Game and it was a you know, porn review site. Had nothing to do with people sending me 20 bucks for an Oxbow record. What are you talking about? He goes, eh, man, you know, we have to maintain certain controls. Exactly. There it is, right? There it is, right there. This We have to maintain this at all costs and we're yeah. going to... We're going to carry out because again, you know, Silicon Valley brands itself as like this uber progressive. No, like, but no. they are libertarian fascists, and that's yeah. at best. 
is is how I would describe them. And I tell you, you know what I did today? Um, I I went to lunch at Google. A friend of mine uh, invited me to lunch at Google. And uh, how do you keep getting to all these places? You, <laughs> I, hey man, you, you know there are odd times like when I was hanging out with Bill Clinton, and I was like, the Secret Service in this country fucking sucks. Because not only am I hanging out with Bill Clinton, but I, I, I actually am armed. And I'm I, and they didn't fucking search me. You know, I could make some headlines here, stabbing <laughs> from, from the new world here. So I, I don't know. I've ended up in some strange, you know, like where I just kind of look around. A friend of mine said at best, he goes, you know, all the crazy shit you used to talk about seems to be coming true. You know, I mean, it's it's happened. You know, th- there was that old sports expression: "Act like you've been there before." So I just tend to act like I've been yeah. there. But you know, hanging out with Halle Berry on her couch at her house, it's like this is kind of weird, man. This is how you know, it's just Eugene here. What? Is, and that should be enough for people. I don't want him in my house. That should be enough. But I guess you know, <laughs> this, this is how we ended up. But no, they invited me there, and what I was shocked about. Um, I was shocked. I don't, I've had plenty of friends who work there. I think it's the first time I was actually invited into the building and I was shocked about how soulless it was. I mean, I used to work at Apple. So like, you know, it's not, I'm no sh- I worked at Apple, Intel, Adobe. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm familiar with the insides of these buildings. They all had different feelings of soul, but I was shocked at how soulless Google felt to me. And, I, and I'm talking about Solus, not in like compared to a magazine I worked for, but Solus compared to Intel or Apple or Adobe or Nikon. These are companies I worked at. And it's just, it was strange. But it, they really work over, like took me to the music building. They have a bowling alley there. They have a swimming pool. <laughs> really gone overboard. <laughs> Make it, you could get cooking classes during the day, tango lessons. My buddy teaches jujitsu there. So, you know, uh, you could, and I mean, he's a Navy guy and he's working on the, on the pixel phone. I mean, he's a hardware engineer, but it's like, they really work hard to make it like a place you never want to leave. And there are plenty of people who sue at the beginning of the shutdown who are like, not sued, but like they were, Hey, what do we do about food? And they're like, what do you mean? They were mean for the past four years, I've not cooked a single meal myself. I don't, and a lot of these cats were guys out of college. I go, I don't know how to cook. Where am I supposed to get my food? Yeah, that's, yeah, you got to love that. So first year out of college, an uh, engineer makes like a hundred grand a year. Is like, I have no idea. Oh, no, 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 my friend. Yeah, yeah. A hundred grand? No, 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 no. This dude, this dude, this dude, he got his degree online. And I think he does, he got an AA degree, not even a bachelor's degree online. <laughs> I, I don't want to I don't I don't want to fuck with your world, but he's making forty five thousand dollars a month, a month. Interesting. And he just got a peer bonus. He's been on the job two months. He just got a peer bonus. I go, what the fuck did you get a peer bonus for? He goes, uh, for teaching jujitsu. <laughs> I, I, I go, you go to the jujitsu class there. Yeah, but I'm the highest rank. This is the guy who took my stripes. I took his stripes and he took my stripes, right? So, right. He, so he's a brown belt. So he's the highest ranking guy there. So he teaches it. He just, just, just a bunch of guys show up. I've never done it before. They got mats. They're rolling around. They gave him $170 for that. 
for a half hour class and they'll do it every time he does one. <laughs> this is on top of the $45,000 a month that he gets paid. So his workday yesterday involved K1 go-kart racing, a trip to the music room, and then the massage chair. He knocked off at three to home because he was tired. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know, man. It's a crazy world. It's a crazy world. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it sounds, uh, I mean, I don't know. I guess. Uh, it, it's harder to get a job at Google than it is to get into Harvard. <laughs> you have a better chance of getting into Harvard than you do getting a job at Google, and now you know why. And still, I found it to be a soulless place. So, I guess money doesn't correlate to soul necessarily. Yeah, sure doesn't. Sure doesn't. <laughs> I mean, how do you like Navy? Barely got out of high school. AA degree. <laughs> Forty-five thousand dollars a month. Okay, this is what I'm getting hung up on. Sorry, because uh, speaking of which, we need to take a commercial break for Blue Apron and Squarespace. Yeah, <laughs> this, is a, this, this is this is what I'm getting hung up on. Yeah, um, uh, a my my college roommate, uh, you know, f- four year bachelor's degree, mm-hmm. um, back end engineer, works for Zeist now. I'm sure you're yep. familiar with that. Yep. That's around your area, Eugene. Yep. Um, his first job out of college, again with all those all those credentials, I and mean, then they started him at around I want to say it was around either eighty to eighty to hundred grand a year, which is uh, where I kind of pulled that number out of out of my ass. The, where I'm getting now 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 you, now I'm curious what, what I'm getting what I'm getting at is there is this rise in tech culture, like the Peter Thiels of the world, Elon Musk mm-hmm. of the world. They they started changing their narrative and their messaging from like oh business school and college is, is a waste of time guys like we don't need that we just need people who want to like hustle and grind and like you know learn to code in in six weeks or however long mm-hmm. they preach it to um again I, I have no interest in in disrespecting your friend but I, i'm wondering if like are you starting to see that become more of like the shape of the workforce where it's like less of an emphasis on the four-year degree, more of an emphasis on specialized programs. And in the long run, the company still ends up paying the employee less than if they uh, had invested in say somebody with a master's or a PhD. No, no, no. He's really talented. And, and he, he solves a couple I mean, he solves problems for them. Right. Sure. Uh, he is older. I mean, he's he's younger than me, but he's, you know, he's 40, 44, 47, 47, he's 47. Um, he's military or former military. Um, and so he clicks, he checks off two boxes, expected class two boxes, uh, two boxes. So it means that they don't have to hire guys like me. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have to, you know, these protected classes. We don't have to get any black folks in here. We got he's an old Navy guy. We've got our, we've got our, we've got our, our, you know. So, um, and and okay, the the weird issue is I had the, the one of the most powerful women at Google actually was like, I'm gonna help you get a job here, Eugene. She was general counsel, Miriam Rivera. And I was like, great. Pushed through my application, and they were like, cool. 
um, and right before they're about to give me the job offer, they say, hey, could you send us your uh, college transcript? I go, why don't I just send you my, you know, my diploma so you could see that I graduated? And they go, no, we want to see the transcript. And I go, well, uh, I, they have the official form. They can give you my GPA. They go, no, we want to see the transcript itself. And I was like, God damn it. I know what's coming, right? And so I get, I order a copy of my transcript up. And then I think, because I'm hoping against hope that I can block out the dates that I, of these classes I took, right? So I can, you can just see I took the classes and you can see the grades, but you don't see the dates, right? And I go, I, I can't do it without that seeming like exactly what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, so I scan it. I fax it to them. And as soon as the fax stops clicking from my side, they call me to reject my application. Right? They, like, you may be good in math, but you're not good enough in math that in that period of time you were, to, you were able to figure out my GPA. They looked to see how old I was. And I'm convinced that that's why I didn't get that fucking job. I'm totally convinced. And then they got sued a bunch for age, ageism. And then now, now they've, but you know, he solves a lot of problems for them. He's older, you know, uh, talented. And then it serves that narrative like, oh, you don't, you know, PhDs, blah, 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 you big shot. You don't need it. Well, yeah. That is, that, that, that's a, that's a, that's a fascinating little, little story there. Uh, yeah. thank you. Thank you for sharing all that with, uh, with me yeah. and Evan. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what Politicore is all about right here is getting into the nitty gritty, you know? <laughs> no, the, Guys, these guys are, are bad, bad for the universe, man. And, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, and there's no. I mean, and, and it, it, to a certain degree, you know, Oxbow's bass player was the number six employee at Tesla, right? So he uh, he knows that he knows a couple of things. He knows that Musk. I'm sure. I'm sure he knows more than a couple of. Things. Well, yeah. <laughs> Musk didn't start that company. A guy named Marty Eberhard started the company, and Marty Eberhard was fired by his board of directors, placed by um, he's replaced by Musk. And the idea, he said, he really liked Marty Eberhard. Marty Eberhard was a genius, but Marty Eberhard could never have taken the company to where it is now, like Musk did, by publicizing it. Right. Right. Of course, then you say, well, okay, well, what did what did Musk do outside of shoot his mouth off? I, well, he, oh man, <laughs> he started. He started PayPal. Well, so then a friend of mine who's a general counsel or a VP of business development at PayPal says, "Well, actually, you know, he didn't start PayPal. He so this guy is a guy who stumbled upward for a long time. He's the richest man in the world. His interests are transnational. He doesn't give a shit about things like the U.S. Constitution or democracy or the will of the people. Those are fictions for him." You know, these are jokes for him. Yeah, they the m most most of these the, the Silicon Valley billionaire types have nothing but utmost contempt for all of those things. Uh, they look at dystopian sci-fi and go, "That's the future I want." Um, well, you know, you, you say know? you say that you know, and what's interesting? At the other day, I was moaning and groaning about money, and I was sitting and I was thinking, you know, you I know four billionaires, four billionaires. I, I couldn't have said that 20 years ago, and now I have four billionaires that if you walk to up on the street and said, hey, Eugene says hi, they go, oh, how is he? That, 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 like, that, 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 like, like that kind of connection to these billionaires. And I find them all to be, like you say, all of them most. I find three of them to be really reasonable, decent, well-meaning people, right? 
I mean, you know, one guy, yeah, you give the shirt off your back. You know, I've never asked him for money. I've never asked, that's usually a no-go zone with those cats. But the kind of money I would ask him for would probably ruin the friendship and anything less I don't need from him, right? So I don't ask him for money. Um, Sergey trains where we train, <laughs> right? He doesn't train at Google. He comes to train to our place, but he's got a proviso. And that's that he uh, does a buyout. There's one anybody else in there, right? But, you know, I like I, my name's on the lease, right? So I finish the class. I got to take a shower. I, everybody's gone. I'm taking a shower and I'll come out onto the mat and they're, they're doing, they're doing kickboxing and doing jujitsu. And uh, so I become friendly with his father, you know, and some, he rolls with all these Russian guys and German guys and I speak a little German. So we cut it up and we talk. And at one point I caught his eye and we're talking about surrogate. He's like, Oh, we're doing that celebrity. Like, don't, don't look at me. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck who you are, man. I'm, you know, I'm just getting my stuff. I'm going to work. I'm getting out of this this room. I'm not about to ask you for your fucking autograph. Um, So, but you know, but generally they seem to be um, all all right people. I I don't know of the ones I know. They don't put, you got to understand every day you wake up, that you're a billionaire, you, it's, your world is, at one point they had a poker game at one of the billionaire's houses here in town, it's like two miles from where I am. It was Bill Gates, Carlos Slim, uh, Bill Clinton, and this other billionaire. And they're playing poker. And people are like, oh, that's kind of, I go, no, 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 no. What do you think the stakes were? Mm. You think they were playing for quarters? Oh, you mean their money? I go, not money, man. They were like, I'll, here's here's Honduras and I'll and I'll raise, <laughs> I'll raise you Nicaragua like you know I mean I made that but when you're interested transnational people fuck you're like Milo Minderbender from you don't care you don't care it's just it's like you know that that's a monkey show for everybody else who reads newspapers it has nothing to do with me you know so yeah I I'll agree to that. Yeah, of course they're they have they ha- they have class solidarity while the rest of us fight a a culture war. Uh, well, yeah, the, you know that's so. What what were the stakes of that game? I I could make an Epstein joke, but maybe I shouldn't. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's what the stakes of the game probably were hey, when they were playing. Hey, let me tell you something. I, I when I I met Clinton when we had this dinner together at the at the hotel in L.A. where the Democratic National Convention was. Uh, that was supposed to usher in Al Gore as, you know, as, well, I mean, yeah, he did. He ran for the party. So it's a small, is six journalists and Bill Clinton. And uh, I'm being, I'm being ushered around by uh, Michael Brown, who was the secretary of commerce's son, uh, Ron Brown's son. And so he's like, I'm going to take you up to meet Bill now that we're going to sit down and eat. So, He's taking me over to meet Bill, and then somebody calls me. Somebody, some a friend of mine who was there. Uh, my oh my 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 style editor. She called me or something. I turned around, and I said, "No, I'll be right back. Don't you know? Stay here." And 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 I turned back, and the cordon of Secret Service men. I they had opened up to let Michael in. I turned around to say something to her. I turned back because it was clear to me that I was with Michael. I turned back and, and the cordon of these 
you know, burly kind of Secret Service because they had closed. But I, I know they saw me, so I just kind of keep walking. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then Michael goes, no, 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 he's with me. And they're like, oh, they let me. And so, you know, so I'm talking to Bill and hanging out and a bit. So, okay, well, we'll let you get to your stuff and then we're going to go sit down. So I go back to my style editor and we're, I said, look, you know, you got to go do this. We're doing other stuff. And, and then I see the most interesting scene ever, right? I see these two women kind of, we were on standing on a, like, a, like a wooden dance floor or something like that, you know, and I see these two women come up and they've got really short leather skirts on. High heeled shoes and uh, halter tops, right? They look like twins, but they're not twins, but they very much look like, and they're not at all dressed consistent with anybody else in this room, right? And so they're making their way toward Bill Clinton. They're standing tentatively on the edge of this circle, waiting for him to conclude this conversation. And suddenly, two things happen. The Secret Service guys become Van Halen roadies. Because all of a sudden, the guys who cordoned off the president from me, they're looking across the room. They're looking at different shit. And they're moving their bodies. And suddenly, they've created a channel for these two women to get to Clinton. (laughs) And I'm like, I got... he, he, He knows we're here, right? Like, this is after the Lewinsky thing. He knows that the media, that I am media, that I am here, right? I mean, I'm standing there. And so the women kind of walk up behind him, and he's his back is to them. And I go, this is going to be a moment. This is going to be something. Like, his wife has already busted him fucking around with the intern. He's going to... And so they the women finally edge up close enough so that whoever Clinton is talking to says something like i can't hear but it, you know indicates that there's somebody and Kilton turns around and this is the moment if i'm him i become a drugstore indian i'm very stiff hi how are you i stand extend my hand clinton turns around he's like hi gives him a big hug and embraces him and i go that's fucking it that's rock star this is like after all like, that's what he does in my wildest dreams i would never i guarantee you i probably slept with more people in clinton and i would never do this i i would be motivated by public and private guilts to like be very formal and i know the press is here to you know keep up a facade this is in public with media there me and five other journalists and this guy is hugging these sisters, prostitutes, who knows, you know, he's just uh, hugging them and talking with them. And then, then, they, then they, then they screw off. I, I'd be very surprised if they didn't know Jeffrey Epstein, these, these two women, given the, their approximate ages. But I was like, they're just living on a different place. They're just living in a different, on a different planet, a different place than the rest of us. You know, I mean, Honduras sounds like a joke. Not really. You know, you read about the history of Dole Pineapple in Hawaii or, mm-hmm. or or somebody gave me a breakdown. Some comedian was joking about how come Haiti is so fucked up and it shares an island with the Dominican Republic. And a friend of mine, a Haiti expert for The Economist, and she was like, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was, a pre- it was a pretty swift jump from them chasing out the French to the French demanding reparations to them having to pay the reparations to as soon as they finished paying off the reparations, American banks show up and we're like, hey, we'll give you some loans. Great. 
and they give the loans to who? Papa Doc. And that brings us right up to modern times where the country is a complete fucking shithole because it's been raped by the industrial first world forever. Honduras, not a joke. That's that's the stakes. They, you know, I'm helping my friends out at, at Dole. This is how it works, man. You know, uh, strange world. I mean, I felt I fell into a period of time with some really bad guys, and they <laughs> like the shit that I don't even think about. The guy was like, "I need construction grade plywood. Can't do you have a line on construction grade plywood?" I go, "What do you mean?" He goes. China was going through this building boom at the time. They want so many metric tons of construction-grade plywood. Can you find it for me? So I find a guy who's got a lumber yard up in Portland, right? And the guy's like, I can surprise for you. But so then, <laughs> so, so then, you know, they're like taking like, I, I, I mean, it, it got so crazy. At one point, I, I'm leaving a lot out. I ended up in a warehouse with these guys and there had been some confusion about the use of the number five. Like I, I, they also had rifles and I used to have a federal firearms license and I'm there and the guy says five and I give him the money for five and they, and it's like in the movies, it becomes sudden. And he's like, what? I said, you ordered 500. I go, bro, 500. I ordered five. I don't have a, I don't have a way to transport 500. I don't have a way to store 500. I don't have money for 500. And you could see there was that tense moment where they were like thinking, like, do we just kill him? <laughs> do we just kill him? And then they eventually gave me the five. I mean, and this was repeated with the industrial grade, you know, plywood, uh, I mean, uh, residential grade plywood. And eventually I start to think, you know, I've just seen too many movies. I've been, I pick up the newspaper and this cat who I've been dealing with is arrested. What's he arrested for? Shot a guy in the face. What did he shoot the guy in the face for? He doesn't know. The guy went into a coma. When he gets out of the coma, they said, who shot you? And they said, Julian Dong. Julian Dong was a Chinese national. He gets arrested, goes to trial. Suddenly, Julian Dong is gone. 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 He's not at San Quentin. He's not in Soledad. He's not in any of the prisons around here, Vacaville. He's not here. He's just gone. <laughs> the kind of guy who would have access to 500 SKS rifles, trick tons of residential grade plywood, who I was dealing with. This is the kind of guy that when he gets arrested for attempted murder, goes to trial and just disappears. <laughs> Did he jump bail? He was repatriated clearly. I mean, we're living in two realities, man. And, you know, power and money is powerful. <laughs> uh, yay. It's a dangerous world we live in. That's why I'm retiring out of it. <laughs> uh, I have nothing but anxiety now after hearing <laughs> all of that. Man, the moment that people really need to focus on, and one of that moments, that, that moment is like, can you imagine what it was like? I mean, Epstein was a piece of shit, but can you imagine what that moment was like where he's like watching everybody clear out of the cell block where he is? Say, hey, <laughs> where you where you guys going? <laughs> And then the door opens and goes, who are you guys? <laughs> it seems the, the cameras turn off. Yeah, man. It's like, you gotta, people keep thinking, no. What do you mean, no? What yeah, do you mean, right. no? You know, you look, I know a guy, I interviewed this guy. His name is Freddie Santoro. And he was part of the undercover team that broke the, so 
I put all this stuff in quotes, broke the back of the mafia back under Giuliani in New York, right? And he was trying to get these mafiosi to, to roll. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't get them to turn. They were being tough guys. And then they said, hey, you know what? One day he just let loose. He goes, we got your phone records. So could you, you, could you, you know, RICO is if you maintain, the RICO statutes are if you maintain associations. So they're asking them, uh, can you help us identify some of these phone numbers? And uh, guys wouldn't turn and go, fuck you, we're not going to do. And they go, you know what? You know what? We don't have to ask you, actually. We'll just go ask your wives. And these guys fucking panicked. And four of them all turned states. It was easier to do than have the cops go back to their wives and go, your cousin made eight calls after midnight on Tuesday. Do you recognize these numbers? These guys weren't going to fucking deal with it. So they they turned state's evidence. They got bailed out, and they went home and, and tried to preserve their marriages because clearly they were all cheating on their wives, you know? I mean, is this the way the system is supposed to work? Is that what Elliot Ness was about? Is that what you got from the movies? Because that's the way shit's really working, you know? Uh, deals. Deals are being cut. <laughs> Yeah, it, it seems like uh, uh, one one thing that has become explicitly clear uh, in, in the in the in the in recent years is that uh, any type of of sex or sexual related blackmail mm -hmm. uh, that you can get uh, seems to be key in preserving and moving power around uh, the the oh. monopoly board, uh, and that seems to be. Um, again, like, you know, we were talking about earlier, you think you have an idea of how things, you know, things function. Um, but in, in reality, yeah, the, the, there is, there is an entirely different world of, of, of power and money. And, uh, uh, the more you dive into it, the more it just kind of feels like, again, it, it, it strictly re revolves around, uh, uh, CIA backed, uh, sexual blackmail uh, along with various, uh, coups or and slash or assassinations in various countries. Hey man, listen, something. One of the one of the when I had my firearms federal firearms license, one of the guys who bought from me was a uh, investigative journalist, and what he was pursuing um, was a story connected to Son of Sam. Son of Sam, who at, at this point in time has come out and said very much the same stuff. But of course, nobody listens to him. And he says, uh, I didn't do this alone. And I was part of uh, the black hand. Yeah. Yep. And he goes that up that was in there were people there that were involved in the in the DA's office, uh, Bronx DA Mario Marola at the time. And people just kind of laughed and poo pooed him out. So this investigative journalist, I know, starts chasing the story. And he then weird stuff starts to happen. He starts getting weird calls. He gets nervous. He decides to buy a 38 for me to protect himself. And eventually he gives a story to uh, Guccione. And, and it's a good story. Guccione kills it and says, yeah, you know, this is kind of a hard news piece. It's not really like what we do. <laughs> Look, if you were in New York at the time, which I was, there were two there were two illustrations of the shooter. Only one of them looked like, like Berkowitz. So there was clearly somebody else. So I asked him to tell me, you know, and he's an investigative journalist, but he's also a writer. He, he I said, he wouldn't tell me the story because he doesn't want me to steal the story. 
And I go, so what, what is the story? What is, he goes, those guys were making snuff films. They were going to lovers lanes, filming and shooting the people they were filming. And the tapes are, 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 are the tapes were the issue. There's been a trail of murders following these tapes. You know, Roy Radin, the guy who was a producer on the Cotton Club who ended up killed in Topanga Canyon. You know, uh, there's another producer out in Long Island who ended up getting killed. Um, and I go, he goes, it involved people from world of arts and entertainment and politics, you know, who at the time there was all this big hubbub about snuff films, snuff films. So clearly some enterprising mercenaries were like, you know, I could probably sell a tape of this stuff to these you know, to these guys who, this is when people would, they would, articles declaring porno chic and people were, a big Friday night was to go to the World Theater and watch Deep Throat. I mean, people, limos were pulling up and people getting out in furs. It was a big deal. And so they made these tapes and the murderers were like, we got to get those tapes back. And so they were essentially killing people in furtherance of getting these tapes back. And that's what was it was all tied into, you know, um, you know, the yes, the occult and all this other stuff. And Berkowitz fundamentally came out and said it. Some of it was captured by Maury Terry in his book before he died. But this guy was like, yeah, why am I pursuing this story at a great risk to myself when nobody when the story that people want to believe, of course, is, is Berkowitz. Berkowitz, also ex-military. Right. That's what they want to believe. So let them fucking believe it. I'm not going to risk my life for it. But yeah, I mean, this is strange, strange, strange world. And the reality of it is like somebody like Prince Andrew, people would have thought it was crazy. Either, oh, Prince Andrew, he's with, with underage hookers until the photos come out. Right. Until the photos come out, you know, uh, or Jimmy Seville. He's a great humanitarian kids in the hospital. I mean, this is stuff that you just like nightmare time but it's happening and it's like really happening and it's not a joke you know um and uh <laughs> and you know we're saying people but we know it's not people right <laughs> outside of jizz lane there's not a woman perpetrator in the bunch here oh these these are these are men these are men and it blows it, it blows my mind i, I it's like uh, prince andrew why do you think she's here <laughs> out of all the men she could have sex with what do you do you think she's choosing to have sex with you? Get the fuck out of you. It's like McGruff the crime dog says, if something seems to be good to be true, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Pay attention to stuff. So, but whatever. Men I saw and- today there was a, a comparing types of journalism and there are rewards you get. The awards you get for, you know, popular journalism are Pulitzers and the re- rewards you get for Real journalism are bullets to the back of the head. Yep. Well, like I, specifically a Gary Webb X-ray, I think. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Him, I. Uh, and there's another one, Danny Casolaro. His this book about him called The Octopus, where the Cabazon Indian tribes and the the you know the defense industry. And listen, man, my first serious job out of college was as an editor uh, in the defense industry, right? And this is when Reagan was president defense money was flying. I was editor of uh, defense electronics and uh, defense computing magazines, right? And you go to these trade shows and somebody would get on stage, 
to say something that violated one of the laws of thermodynamics, right? Now I'm just a, I'm like an assistant editor. I'm like low man on the totem pole. And I'm looking around, a friend of mine, Jim Spilker, who was the head of uh, Stanford Telecom, he died a few years ago. And he's a PhD Stanford professor, bona fide genius. And he was like, that violates the laws of thermodynamics. And so we, I'm looking around the room and all these guys, they're all in, man. They're all in. They're all PhDs. They know it violates the laws of thermodynamics, but Reagan was cutting such big checks. They didn't give a shit. Whatever. Yeah, whatever you say. Yeah, sure. Right, okay. I mean, it's not a joke. I, let me let me tell you. Let me tell you. I wrote an article about my father. My father was Air Force Intelligence, right? East Germany in the Cold War. He was he was a bass player for the CIA, right? Um, because they didn't expect that black guys would have language skills. My father speaks like five languages, right? Russian, Russian, German, Chinese, and Japanese. And he taught himself sign language. He and I don't speak to each other. But that's neither here nor there. So he was playing in a jazz trio in Eastern Bloc countries. And if he heard anything, he was supposed to report back. So I write a piece about this, but more it's Father's Day piece about our fractured relationship. I get an email, not from my father. I get an email from a guy who says, I believe that my father was your father's station chief in in west berlin when he was stationed in east berlin and he sent me a book which i've got around here somewhere talking about the operation that my father was involved with now look i don't know if his father was my father's station chief i don't know if he's the son of that father i don't know anything except a guy read an article i wrote about my father tied him into the CIA and me into the CIA, contacted me and sent me the book that talks about my father. Oh, that's that's a setup. <laughs> All weird world, man. I, I took the book, you know, I got it here and I read the page that talked about my father and I, he and I don't speak to each other, so I don't have any way to clarify with him whether or not it's the case. But, you know, it's it's anytime you think something is too crazy to be the case you don't believe that for a second gary webb danny casolaro i have a friend deborah Bonello, and she works for vice and she is there like central american and she's writing exclusively she's got a book coming out on uh narco terrorism and uh she's got a security team and they are constantly like but journalists are being picked off in mexico every day every day and you know hanging out with her my head was on a swivel you know it's like she's like oh you can relax you can relax i was like okay okay you know how i'm gonna relax i'm gonna get the fuck out of this country that's how i'm gonna relax and i'm not talking about america i'm talking about mexico man uh life when you're a transnational multi-billionaire life is very other people's lives are very cheap you know, I mean, I love that that word that British use. They British use it more often than Americans use it. They say that oh, we're gonna have a we're gonna have a reorg, a reorg. That sounds like a, like a picnic. Yeah, reorganization. Oh yeah, you were disorganized. Now you're gonna get reorganized. It means we're gonna fire a bunch of people. Eugene. Oh oh oh. Okay. <laughs> it's a, I love your language. I did not know that's what that meant. Okay. Yeah, that was uh, Arizona's approach to education. 
when my wife and I were both educators. Mm-hmm. It was anytime uh, Arizona was not doing well nationally, which is uh, perennially the case mm-hmm. um, in terms of education, fire everybody in the school and hire back half of the people, which yeah, is man. a business model. That's how yep. you do it with business, failing businesses. Yep. And that way you get rid of enemies and dead wood or whatever. And then, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not even funny, man. It's, it's a weird, it's a weird, I, look, I got, I, I tell you, when I was at EQ, they called me in and said, uh, Eugene, we're trying to position the company for a sale. I was like, cool. And they're like, uh, so we need to get their finances in shape. And uh, so I, I want you to um, lay some people off. I go, oh, that's that's no good. And they're like, well, so who who, who are you going to lay off? And I said, well, um, I don't want to lay off the girl who's my my managing editor whose mother just died. And I don't want to my designer, my head designer who just bought a house or the guy who dropped out of a PhD program to come here to be my associate editor and moved across country. I can't. I go, well, how much are you trying to mitigate? So, well, we're trying to mitigate $1.9 million. I go, there's nobody on my staff that makes the kind of money that's going to make any sense. And they're like, okay, never mind. That's a Friday. Monday, they call me and say, Eugene, can we talk to you for a second? I'm sure I see this coming. I didn't. I go, yeah. They said, we're laying you off. <laughs> and I did, I, just, I did just that. I just laughed. I was like, all right, you know, um, and... Uh, and uh, they, you know, good luck to you. And I was like, okay, good luck to you guys. And uh, I still defend what I did because they did this to one of the other publications. And the guy there, I mean, this is like the movie Mephisto or any other movie about collaborators. The guy who was the editor of the publication, he picked the guy, one of his editors, who was his best friend, whose wife had just had a baby. So they really, or whose wife was pregnant, was about to just have a baby. So they really needed, uh, they really needed the healthcare, right? And so he picked that guy to lay him off and they laid him off. His best friend laid him off before his wife had the baby. And three months later, they laid off the guy who laid off the guy, (laughs) right? So he completely, and punchline, the guy who he laid off years ago is like some hot shot big wig now in a corporate sense. And that other guy is unemployed. Can't go back. Can't mm-hmm. go back. I, 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 I feel fairly clean, you know, fairly clean about how it went out. Yeah, it was a drag to get laid off when I didn't, you know, I got kids too. But the reality of it was, you know, um, and then when they sold the company, which they did, they all got into trouble because they cooked the books, right? <laughs> so, yeah, these people don't care about anybody. Yeah, I think money... I think the question of whether money influences the art somebody's making really became money influences everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody's really immune to it. Like I like to think that my principles would uh, withstand making more money than I do now, but who knows? Well, uh, not to that level, maybe. Well, listen, you know, they, I mean, at one point we were in Japan, Oxbow was in Japan and they were talking, they had decided, you know, could say, oh, you guys would never sell out. I go, oh, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. 
slow up. <laughs> if anybody understands the value of a dollar, it's Oxbow, you know? And, uh, and the reality of it is anybody who came to us to do like a Ford commercial, <laughs> you know, I mean, they pretty much know what they're getting with Oxbow. So if you want to give me a hundred thousand dollars to do a Ford commercial, I'm doing a Ford commercial, right? Money, easy money. And they go, what's selling out? I go, I, I, I don't know what you mean selling out, <laughs> you know? And I, I do, to me, selling out is one thing and one thing only. And I call those people ladder pullers. And I had a friend, mm -hmm. I had a friend who was like, I got up here by dint of my skill and talent. And I, I suggest you do the same. I go, really? What about that ladder next to you? Go with ladder. I didn't use that ladder. No, I saw you use the ladder. Well, that ladder was for you. You know, it's like, you know, anytime anybody's talked about people selling out, it's always been in my mind it's only held water when those people have denied denied me access to the things that made it possible for them to get where they were right those are the two myths of uh, white supremacy and capitalism or individualism and meritocracy yeah you know chuck dukowski is the one who finally got my head around right around that you know he was like don't believe this fucking john wayne bullshit about you know, it, look, you take 100 babies and put them in a field and come back a month later, they're all dead, man. <laughs> you know, we're, we're cooperative, collective, indiv you know, individuals. And that's the deal, you know. And I was like, he's crazy. Well, maybe he's not. Actually, he's completely fucking right. And then it became a political thing where, you know, you didn't do it during that election cycle. Where, like, you didn't do it yourself, right? Everybody, everybody has help. Right. Mm -hmm. So who helps and for how long and for what reason? And, you know, so I'm not averse to money at all. I'm, in fact, I'm a big fan of it. <laughs> um, but uh, but I'm also, you know, it. Uh, you, you must be you must. What is that? Uh, Diamanda Gallus thing. You must be certain of the devil. You know, do not let money confuse you. And it's real easy to get confused by it. Mm hmm. Speaking of Diamanda Gallus, now might be a good time for us to talk about underrated artists. You I'm good with it, Dylan. Yeah, I'm 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 good with that. Sorry, I've just been like uh, I've just been staring at the floor, just having anxiety about uh, <laughs> just everything now. Um, well, I had all these ideas about titling an episode something like I don't know the principles of journalism and now i think we just need to stick with the most interesting man in the world uh yeah yeah well <laughs> I'm, I'm good with that uh i again mean, i would i would make like a tinfoil hat joke but the more and more uh the more and more you look into this kind of stuff i think uh, all the all the things we've already talked about the less it's the less it's tinfoily and the more it's just like this is literally uh just the function of, of power yeah uh, yeah, and I've seen yeah. enough of those things like COINTELPRO and MK Ultra, enough of those things that come declassified, and you're like, oh, exactly. it's worse than we thought. Yeah, it, it's always it's, that's what I'm saying is like is like yeah, I, I, COINTELPRO is one of the best examples. Like that shit is insane, and so to to sit around and go, huh, it's a good thing they're not doing anything like that right now. You yeah. you know what I mean? Like, of course they are. Of course they fucking are. And um, uh, yeah, I uh. Well, any part of it. <laughs> yeah, but then, I mean, you know, we got, um, I ran a piece from uh, Whitey Bulger 
um, if you remember, G- Jimmy Bulger. I did a chapter yeah. fight book with Kevin Weeks, who was this guy. And he, he said he got, how did, how did he, how did Whitey Bulger get out of Alcatraz? He was already in Alcatraz for fairly serious crimes. He took a bunch of LSD. That's how he got out. He was mm-hmm. late, later accusing the government. I'm going to sue the government for, you know, uh, because they jammed me full of LSD and then put me in, in prison and then put me back out on the streets. You know, they, they bear some responsibility for this. And then, of course, then he was mysteriously transferred in, mm-hmm. in, in a, in, okay, they transport people in prisons all the time. That wasn't strange. That he ended up in a in in a lockup with a guy who he had murdered the guy's. Bi- Come on, was that an accident? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not only what did he get put it in, in in the course of being transported, a guy in a wheelchair. He gets put in with a guy from Rhode Island or who had a beef, but the guy also had a lock and a sock. <laughs> I mean, come on. What a coincidence. <laughs> A dude wasn't he wasn't you know wasn't the greatest guy in the world clearly, but that was a was a fucking setup and it's like no, I, hey man no I, one of the pieces I was doing I had two friends, and uh, they both murdered their girlfriends right, um and one guy got seven years in prison and the other guy got twenty five years in prison. And I, I, I wanted to do a story where I broke down the differences in the trials and, and what ha- they both mutilated their girlfriend's bodies uh, post facto. And, um, and the second guy got out of jail out of San Quentin and was a UPS. It uh, was a manager at UPS, <laughs> like, a you know, had actually worked himself up, been out of prison a couple of years. But uh, then I he had scheduled an interview with me. And then his cousin called me back and was like, no, dude's back in. So clearly there was some violation of his parole or something. And he's back in. And then, you know, I left Ozzy. And so it was no, I'm still, I mean, the piece now doesn't serve my, I don't know where he is. I haven't tried to track him down, but you know, and deals are being cut all over the place. Everybody's cutting deals. It's just, it's, it's a weird place in a weird time, you know, and it's not, it's not getting any less. So, if you're out of harm's way, you can consider consider yourself lucky. Yeah, it's with MK Ultra. It's bizarre to me that CIA accidentally created the hippie movement, which became the bane of their existence forever, and then they also created Whitey Bulger and the Unabomber, all because they were afraid that the Soviet Union had come across mind control before we would. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you say you act like they, all those things were accidental. There was enough state serving chaos created from the hippie movement that I would make the claim that it, that it, that it, it very specifically did serve their purposes. So that when Eugene Hassenfuss flies a fucking plane, you know, when the old Iran contragate, and, and, and unless you think, let, unless you think that this shit is remote, so Eugene Hassenfuss is flying planes of weed. To, you know, and, and narcotics back to America, cash to Nicaragua for the Sandinistas. So you're thinking like, okay, Iran contragate. Okay, that happened to be right around the time that I was working, Elliot Abrams, these cats in the State Department, that I was working at Defense Electronics. Oh, who is this? My boss's name in the paper. These guys, <laughs> these guys, Singlaub, General Singh, these guys would show up in the office. This is not like 
I'm not just talking about stuff I read in the paper. This is like guys like with known associates of mine. This shit is real. It's all around us. It's it's wild and absolutely maddening, you know. Um I mean, like, for example, I'll give you an example. If you, you, you want a little bit of anxiety, you know, everybody's all involved in this kind of gun control. Guns, guns, guns. You, you do realize that the, look, Poland was full of guns when the Nazis invaded, right? A lot of guns, a lot of guns didn't stop the Nazis. So the fact that they let us have guns, this is bullshit. <laughs> type in, type in, <laughs> type in uh, uh, non-lethal weapons, they have microwave weapons that can make your skin. You're not pulling a trigger on shit if it feels like your skin's on fire. You can just go to YouTube, non-lethal weapons. You know, I mean, they got us tanked up on all, running this way and that way across these fields where the real game is other places. I don't, I, I just, I'm tired. I'm tired of playing. Don't want to participate. I'm out. I'm gone, you know. <laughs> well, we hope that you'll continue sharing your art and thoughts and brilliance and wherever you end up uh well i told you where i'm gonna end up i don't need to repeat it all in the office because right. i don't, no, I don't, don't you don't need to <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be sitting at home and go hey who, who are those guys coming up the walk right. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah you know fortunately uh the, the precautions that are taken so who knows so it's a wild it's a strange strange place um, and you know, and, and you know, and, and what's wild, like, uh, like, you know, they talk about money being the root of all evil. That's a big part of it. Now, there's a there's a guy who I know, and he's a good guy, um, better guy when he's not drinking, and he's in a band, a band that everybody's heard heard of, and which I won't I won't name, and um, he is. Um, and I don't believe that this is common knowledge. He is wealthy beyond belief, like like incredibly wealthy, like family, like massive amounts of family money that's unknown to most people. And um, I, I've watched since I found this out. I've watched how how he comports himself in the scene where you know a lot a lot of people have a lot of money, and you can tell that there's something, and it's very much part of his artistic oeuvre. But it's just it's just. Uh, it's just wildly and weirdly different, you know. It, and, and 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 but 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 it's redolent with the stink of cash. And uh, I, I I found I found in my life the more cash that I've made, the nicer I've been. But that I, that that is generally not the case. Yeah, I think I seem to, based on my experience, I think I'm with you on that. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny that I feel safer. I generally feel safer in neighborhoods that people skip around. Yep. Than um, the more suburban, affluent areas. Well, I mean, you know why, right? I mean, it's like if you don't have anything, it you know people do. Let's like when a shark bites somebody, a human, they typically don't continue with the, the attack right and they don't the attack because there's not enough meat there to justify continuing right so they, they just stop of course the person dies because they're wounded and it's you know does it so i think you know in a poor neighborhood people really do 
a value assessment and like, you know, this guy's got nothing. <laughs> they leave you alone, right? Uh, other neighborhoods, you know, they've got cops. They've got, it's just a different calculation, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, and of course, people go there in order to, you know, to feed off the wealthy who, the wealthy have correctly figured out that that's the way we feel about them. Because <laughs> they've been feeding off everybody else this whole time. Yeah, you know, I mean, like I said, they, you know, when I made a lot of money, it's not always the case, but uh, again, out of the billionaires I know, they seem to be all genuinely decent people. Um, But, uh, you know, I don't know a lot of billionaires, you know, Um, and certainly I don't know ones like Peter Thiel um, or Larry Ellison is another one that I've heard bad things about. Uh, Careful, they both listen to this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Friend, friend of the friend of the show, Peter. I'm, I'm actually, you know what? I I should. I'm actually his his blood boy. I do his like so he can stay young. He takes like <laughs> he has the blood transfusions. I this, we hang out. No big deal. Hey, you know, a friend of mine got herpes from Larry Ellison, and got it so bad she couldn't walk. And she was really young, had never didn't know what was going on, and was in the hospital. And so they said, "No, you've got herpes." And she freaked out as they're rolling her in the wheelchair, too. She's like, Larry Ellison gave you herpes. Larry Ellison gave you herpes. And magically, his lawyers appeared. <laughs> like, uh, okay, well, what do we have to do here to make you whole? And, you know, kid, she was like 21 or something like that, 22. And she, you know, she, I'm not a prostitute. You know, okay. So I go, what did they end up giving you? She says, well, they bought me a car. That was it. That's all she wanted. And when she got out of the hospital, she wanted to see him because she perceived that they had a relationship. And uh, so she went to his house in Woodside near here. And uh, he wouldn't open the door. So she climbed the fence. And he's got all these in-ground sensors. And his security squad ran out and... uh, wrestled her to the floor and uh, that was the end of that hmm. <laughs> she never saw him again but at least she got the car and the herpes jesus <laughs> oh man i'm sorry i'm sorry to have taken this dark turn you, 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 you guys you guys want to talk to me i'm sorry i just i told you what is it? Well, i'm just there, there are two reasons I feel like I was just telling, I, I was just thinking like two reasons this might have to be the last episode of Politicor is that I don't know that we're going to be able to come up with a more interesting conversation. And I don't know if we're going to be on somebody's watch list. <laughs> well, it depends on who you get it to. There's so much stuff on the web that, you know, I uh, you know. We just need to do what the government does, which is add some really implausible conspiracy theories to kind of cloak the very plausible ones so that we just sound like crackpots and everybody just dismisses everything we say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, That that, that would work. Uh, I think think that would work. Anyway. Well, yeah, we'll we'll edit that part in at at, at the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, like, oh yeah, gay, also, gay frogs. It's, yeah, it's all lizard. It's all lizard people. So, uh, <laughs> everybody, don't worry about a thing. We're totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> and Jewish space lasers, right? Right. 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 Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gay frogs. Hey, all that stuff. So, 
Well, shit. Should should we uh should should we finally should we finally all do our our one underrated uh, underrated gem for for the to close out the episode? So, yeah, so, yeah. So there's some music talk in here. <laughs> yeah, you, you got you guys go first because I I don't want to pick something that you were gonna pick. So no no worries, Evan. So, you want to go? Sure. First, I mean this is kind of not my official entry, but uh, everybody needs to listen to all of Eugene's projects because although they are legendary in a lot of circles, I still feel like more people need to be listening to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, listen to Oxbow, Boonwell, Whipping Boy, listen to all of Eugene's projects. Um, But my official entry is Conga Fury. Um, Conga Fury is a Japanese hardcore grindcore band um like a lot of the underrated bands uh the one the way i found out about this one is through a split that they had with shitstorm hmm. um and that was at least partly released onto live a lie records and shitstorm i think is also underrated but conga fury i feel like because that was the the kind of de facto b-side since they're not from america um i feel like nobody seems to talk about them i feel like people really need to be listening to some conga fury because they have some really amazing stuff out it's usually just on you know international compilations or splits but excellent stuff and and too often stuff that's from japan gets kind of just put into the japan box um which is unfair and uh here's a band that stick sticks out for me beautiful um yeah mine for this episode um keep it simple as as always uh oh yeah actually no i'll do i'll do a band that's actually current like a someone that you can you know go see if you're if you live in the i think the the southeast part of the country is a destruct from from richmond virginia Mm -hmm. um just d beats on d beats on d beats um as i see like a lot of like a lot of the I call them, you know, I call them clout dogs on Instagram. Like all the all the all the cool guys uh, rep them pretty hard, but uh, I want to see them, want to see them two or more. Want to want to see them, uh, want to see them get get on all the all the fests, all the shows. They're they have a full length called uh, Echoes of Life. It's unstoppable, just raw D beat fury. Uh, so destruct from Richmond. If you want to be one of the cool guys. Yeah, yeah, seriously, which everybody does. So go listen to Destruct. All right, so my my pick is you did did choose it so I could choose it, it and I, I'm gonna say, um, it's weird, right? If you if you like, there are people who there's one guy, two two guys who I know, who were already into punk rock when I got into punk rock in 1977, right? One of those guys was Jack Rabbit. Uh, from the big takeover, used to drum for that band, the Stimulators, as well as this other band called Even Worse, and Harley. These are the only two guys who were in bands when I got into punk rock in 77 who know me from back then. Consequently, it, I, I think it's been very hard for these guys to take me seriously, <laughs> right? Because they remember me at 16, right? So it's like, yeah, okay, you just got some little bad oxbow or whatever. No, I got you. So there's this whole kind of uh, uh, 
st class standing thing that happens. And I did this with this band where I fuck those guys. They're just kids. They're just kids. And then through the, the miracle of shuffle, I kept finding myself getting up, walking across the room going, who the fuck is this? And I found out the answer was always the same. Uh, another jujitsu black belt, Ray Capo's youth of today. Oh yeah. And I, I, I felt so bad that I slept on them because they were just like kids, those kids from, I'm not going to listen to anybody from Connecticut. You know, I'm a Brooklyn guy. What well, ah, fuck them. We got to, and, and, I think I really blew it, <laughs> you know, but I mean, keep in mind, I came at a time where really blowing it means SSD play or, you know, whipping boy was playing with, me, or I was seeing the necros. So it was a really rich time. It was easy to, to avoid youth of today, but their music has stood up over time and I, I really enjoy them. And it's a big mistake that I made. So. Yeah. All time favorites for me, for sure. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, absolutely for for better or for worse. Youth of today changed yep. hardcore in so many ways. So, and a jujitsu player, right? Ray Cal yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, who are you excited for for UFC two seventy five? Oh, you know, you come on, if you you, you know, you, I'm team old guy, man. Come on, <laughs> I, I I have no problem. I believe he's going to take it, uh, Glover specifically. Is what I'm talking about. So. All right. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about Yuri, but I'm I'm kind of I'm excited to watch that match. And, you know, you know I could I, if if he wins, I'll be happy for him. That's fine. But I think Glover, I think Glover's going to take it, and uh, that's my bet. I did it. I, I already I'm down on paper for it. So you know. Shevchenko and Santos will be also worth watching for sure. She's great. I interviewed her. She's really phenomenal, and uh, I'm yeah. I, I picked her to win as well. I think she's on an unstoppable streak. Excellent. Well, I mean, it has been a, a dream and also just a total pleasure, Eugene. Thank you for so much for taking the time. Hey, anytime, and then send me a link when it's ready, and I will post. All right. All right, you guys. Yep, Eugene. Th th thank, thank you so much. It, um, yeah, this was a lot, a lot of fun, and um, yeah, just it was awesome meeting you. And thank you for your time. All right. Hey, and next time I'm in town, I will, I will seek you out. Yeah, yeah. Get at me. You All know, right. you know what right. to do. All right. <laughs> All right. Later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.